This is Hypercritical. Finally, it's a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect. You will see that it can't be complained about by my co-host, John Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday. It is May 11th, 2012. 67 of these episodes. We're recording that one today. I want to say thanks very much to our sponsors, igloosoftware.com and hover.com. Bandwidth for this episode has been provided by my friend and yours, symbolicons.com. That's some very cool vector-based icons from my friend, Jory Raphael, who uh, does all of the artwork and the logos and stuff at 5x5. If you want some cool icons, go check out symbolicons.com. Hello, John Syracuse. Hello, Dan. Before the show, John was complaining that there was a little snap, crackle, and pop, but not the cereal. Yep. The audio kind. But I think we're good now. You're going to tolerate it. Yeah, I don't hear it anymore. Could be gone. <laughs> okay. Skype has pre-show jitters, maybe. Yeah, it's a little nervous. First okay. time. <laughs> I got some follow-up today, and I got a couple of little mini topics. All right. I love the mini topics. They're bite-sized enter- bits of entertainment. It's wonderful. They are. Uh, so the last show, at one point, I discussed the agency model and uh, Apple's 30% cut of ebooks and things related to that, specifically making reference to a past episode of the talk show uh, that I was in the process of listening to. And I thought how uh, John Gruber was having trouble coming up with an example of, of how the 70-30 split doesn't work for ebooks in the agency model. And I said, I didn't know about the specifics of that, but I could give an example from my past where there wasn't another 30% for another middleman to take. And I gave that example. And then after the show, I resumed listening to the talk show. And pretty much the moment I I pressed the play pause button on my iPod again to resume (laughs) it, Gruber goes, oh, hey, someone in the chat room told me like uh, about what I was trying to think of before, but couldn't. Here's an example of by the 73rd. So apparently... In that episode, John Gruber did eventually get a good, solid example of why the 70-30 split doesn't work for current ebook vendors. So I apologize to people for suggesting that he never could think of one. Eventually, later in the show, he did get one. I should have finished listening to the show before I said anything about it. So that was my first piece of follow-up because that was... Couldn't, my, you couldn't help yourself. You were just very excited. Yeah, it was amazing time. Like I hit pause and then the first thing out of his mouth is, you know... Someone has a suggestion here, and this is the I'm like, oh jeez, I just recorded a show. But anyway, what else is new? All right, uh, so now more traditional follow up. So the, the last show, I referenced a widely circulated quote about the kids these days, and that it was attributed, uh, supposedly attributed by Plato to Socrates. That says of how old, uh, you know, the kids these days are not behaving like they should, and. The world is going to hell in a handbasket, basket, blah, blah, blah. And I said that I had tried to find attribution for this quote and could not. So I was just going by the millions of hits I found that say, oh, Socrates said this in this year or Plato said that Socrates said this uh, in this year. Uh, but I eventually did find a good attribution. Actually, someone sent this to me and I don't have their name here. I apologize if you sent this to me. Uh, I seem to have lost your name, but it's from quoteinvestigator.com. Just goes to show there's a website for everything. Uh, and the URL is in the show notes. And the quote investigator has determined the, as far as this website is concerned, the origin of this quote. 
Uh, it, it mentions that it's been used in newspapers since like back as far back as 1922. I mean, this is the kind of research you can do. You can go back through uh, publications that we have public records of and say when was this quote used. Uh, so it's, it, they have instances of the quote going far back, but that doesn't say who created it. So apparently, according to the quote investigators research, this quote was created by a student, Kenneth John Freeman, for his Cambridge dissertation published in 1907. So it's a pretty old quote, but uh, it is not a quote of Socrates. It is a quote from a paper. Socrates uh, wasn't still alive then? I don't think so. <laughs> now, now here's here's the catch. So it's like, it did did John did Kenneth John Freeman say this? Is he quoting himself? Uh, what the quote investigator says is that Freeman did not claim that the passage under analysis was a direct quotation of anyone. Instead, he was presenting his own summary of the complaints directed against young people in ancient times. So although it is not a quote of an individual person, it is someone in their scholarly work in 1907 saying, here is a summary of the complaints that ancient people had about young people. Uh, so I think the the point of the quote that people have been saying the kids these days for you know literally centuries stands, but it's certainly not a direct quote from Socrates or any translation thereof. It is simply a summary of historic complaints uh, as published by someone in 1907. And the fact that People have been publishing this quote in, you know, at least in the according to these rich newspapers since at least 1922 uh, shows that it does hold like everyone thinks the kids these days are a problem and people say that forever and ever. So I was glad that someone somewhere had figured that I, I should have gone to like Snopes or something. But this is this is what the link that somebody sent me. And I think it's a good link. It's in the show notes. Check it out. Uh, also, on last week's show, I mentioned I got I don't even know how we got into this topic, but I mentioned the idea that. Uh, do you remember what the context was? The, the defining life is a difficult thing to do. What was I, what was I saying that in, in reference to? Oh man. feels like a million years ago, John. Yeah. It was so, something like, uh, coming up with a definition for something is not as simple as you think it is. And one of the examples is what I said, you know, life, for example, if you think you have a reasonable, wasn't, wasn't this life, in, in reference to the video game thing, defining art and what is, Oh art? yeah, yeah. That was probably it. The definition of art is one of those things that's everyone thinks they know what it is, but yeah. when it comes time to define it, it's difficult. Right. So uh, first you, I think your, your point was that you have to first define what is art and come to an agreement on what is art before you can then say something is or is not art and that each person will come out with their own completely separate definition of what art really is. Yeah. And it's not easy. It's not easy to nail down. Uh, and life I find is the most interesting example because most people don't think too hard about that because like, uh, you know, we say, well, I, I can't define life, but you know, it's like pornography. I know it when I see it. Uh, but it seems like something that, you know, if I show you something and I say, is this alive? Yes or no. Most people think they can answer that question. Uh, and then if you ask them, how do you define life? People will probably come up with a reasonable definition, uh, but it's so easy to find counterexamples and say, well, okay, that's great. But what about this living thing? It doesn't meet your definition. So you change your definition. Okay, well then uh, what about this living thing? And, you know, and scientists are going through the same phenomenon to say, you know, they, there's been a scientific definition of life from many different fronts, from many different wings of science. And those definitions always have to change when we find something else and we decide that it's alive. So Emil Pierfault sent me a link to a TED Talk by Christoph Adami. Uh, who I may have seen this TED Talk before. I think it's an older one. Uh, and I, I'm sure I've seen things that are similar. I put it in the show notes. I suggest everyone take a look at it. Uh, he is a researcher into artificial life. And uh, the, the summary of the talk is, how do we search for alien life if it's nothing, if it's nothing like the life that we know? Uh, so his research is like uh, self-replicating computer programs showing uh, artificial life. But he does a whole section on the definition of life. And I think it's uh, very informative. 
uh, one example that I liked from the talk was, you know, he shows a big picture of a lion on a slide and says, you know, identifying life is pretty easy. I think everyone agrees that this thing is alive. Big giant hairy cat walking around. Yep. Thumbs up. Life. No problem. Uh, <laughs> but he gives an example. of right. So if you, if you structure your definition of life around the lay person's expectation of life, one one thing that you might throw into your definition that seems very reasonable is you might say, OK, uh, a life is something that grows. Uh, and, and another one is like life is something that dies, right? And that's kind of self-referential because they say, oh, well, what is death? It's the end of life and therefore something living must die. It's kind of circular logic. But uh, in a common sense explanation, most people can be on the same page with that to say uh, if something is life, then it has to die, right? I, I don't think there are many people who argue with that. So he uses this in his slide and he said, well, what about this thing? And he shows this weird jellyfish looking thing. And he says, this thing grows to adulthood and then regresses back to sort of like an em embryonic form and then grows back up to adulthood and then regresses and then grows back up and then regresses. It doesn't die. And it, for, you know, I think everyone would accept that this weird jellyfish looking thing swimming around is live. That is life. So you've got to cross off. Okay. Doesn't die. Well, we've got a counterexample for that. That's the type of situation scientists are in that every time they come up with something they think is a reasonable boundary for a definition of life, they find counterexamples. And this is just on one planet, just on our planet. Right? So, the idea of finding life elsewhere in the universe and how it might look uh, is pretty daunting. So I like the idea of not being able to define life and basically saying everything is life or nothing is life or it's nonsensical. So thanks, Emil, for that link. Is that why you don't like sci-fi? I do like sci-fi. Okay. Why would you say I don't like sci-fi? I thought you were into D&D more. Mm, yeah, I don't think so. Okay. Bag of holding. Yeah. All right. So there's another good last name here. Frank Chichier? Ciccioni. No, C-H-I-A-C-H-I-E-R-E. -E. Right. He uh, talks about the game discussion again, which I swear I really am trying to leave behind. But <laughs> you told me, you told me for the record offline, you told me you really are trying to move past the game. I, thing. I am, but I am. But you the, can't help it. I can't. People have good feedback. Um, so <laughs> he says he's a bit surprised. I didn't bring the discussion back to connect it back to my game controller discussion. Uh, and he says uh, that the enjoyment of gaming is directly tied to the human computer interface. Uh, so the idea that the the barrier to, to enjoyment that I was talking about is tied up a lot in the control interface between, you know, you as the person and the thing on the screen. And I was just kind of accepting that as a given and saying, OK, well, people don't have the skills to play these games and it's a barrier to consumption and blah, blah, blah. See previous three shows about this. Uh and what Frank points out is that a, a revolution in game controller design could could fundamentally change the barrier between the person and the game. Uh, and that really like maybe that is what this ends up being like. This is not this is not a some equality that's inherent in the medium. It's simply uh, a side effect of the current state of the art of the medium. Uh, an obvious example would be if, you know, speaking of sci fi, if games had thought control and you didn't physical dexterity hand-eye coordination and all that was completely taken out of the equation and you just control it with your mind as easily as you control your own body, right? That would, to my mind, pretty much eliminate this barrier because anyone anyone who can, or mostly eliminate the barrier because anyone who can just walk around in the regular world should be able to walk around in a virtual world. Uh, and the the thing stopping people from doing that is the abstraction between, okay, well, I move my thumb this way, holding this weird plastic thing, 
And that makes the person I see the, on the screen move in this direction, but is the direction I push the stick, you know, I have to translate from, okay, if I push forward, is that going forward from the perspective of the person or is it going forward from the perspective of the screen? Or is it like Resident Evil type of scroll controls versus Mario 64 type controls? These are all things gamers know about and, and accept and, and handle without thinking about it. Uh, but so may, maybe it's not so much that the, that the medium of games is has this skill barrier to consumption, but that the current incarnation of that medium and that, that the medium itself could change in such a way as to reduce or eliminate that barrier. Uh, I don't think it'll ever be completely eliminated until it literally is like, you know, the hollow deck or thought control or something like that. Uh, Frank brings up the idea of connect. Uh, that's a fairly barbaric example of attempting to provide a control scheme that regular people find easier to use than, uh, than regular controllers, but I think Wii's motion controls is a step in that direction. So who knows? Let's we'll report back in fifty years and see how the skill barrier to consumption of gaming has changed or not. I, I thought that piece of insight was worth sharing, even though we're really not talking about gaming anymore, really. So that's it. So don't write John anymore about anything game related. You you can keep writing me about it. In fact, I have two more follow up <laughs> items on, or three more follow up <laughs> items on it. But only it's, it's, we'll get only the top quality stuff. That's what gets through. Provide quality content, it comes in. All right. So Greg Restall writes in uh, talking about quality game television shows. I think I mentioned like how difficult it was to find comedians who are who are funny and also part of gaming culture uh, and are not sort of patronizing or sound like outsiders saying you know the MTV and whatever. Uh, they don't sound like your dad trying to talk about, what about these wacky video games? Like, they are one of us, but yet they're also funny. And there's a similar phenomenon in television shows. I don't haven't watched much video game stuff on television, but the little stuff I have watched, it's kind of like, or like the, you know, the, the Spike Video Game Awards and stuff. Gamers, a lot of the times, feel that's not speaking to them because it's, it, I don't know, it, like, it, gamers sneer at that stuff because it looks like it's marketing gaming to a bunch of people who aren't gamers and they have to dress it up and try to make it seem cool and put celebrities on there and have rock bands and all sorts of things. It doesn't, it doesn't really speak to us and the reason we enjoy games. Like they, they want us to enjoy games for the same reason they want people to buy beer. Because they're like, look, you know, you'll get beautiful women and rock and roll and everyone has a good time. And it's like, no, we, we appreciate games on their merits. We don't have, you don't have to connect games with something else that is broadly acceptable as desirable. Games themselves are interesting and desirable to us. You don't have to dress it up and find that insulting. So Greg lives in Australia, and he says that on their ABC network, not our ABC, but their ABC, he says it's more like the, the, the BBC or Canada's CBC, they have a pair of television shows which are not embarrassingly bad. That's not his phrase that he uses, but that, that's my description. One is called Good Game, and there's a link for it in the show. This is apparently for adults. And then there's Good Game Spawn Point, which is supposedly for younger gamers. And I... Went to the Good Game website and watched uh, one of their video reviews. It was a review of Kid Icarus. Um, and I found it acceptable. <laughs> I found it, <laughs> That's a huge compliment for me. I found it not cloying and insulting and disgusting. I think the person giving the review was an actual gamer. Uh, he didn't talk down to me. Uh, it was entertaining. Uh, maybe it's not up to the standard of the best of the best of online only gaming because television necessarily does have to have a broader reach so they they can't just talk to hardcore gamers because then your audience is too small. But it's still far better than anything I've seen on US TV involving games. 
Uh, so I would, I guess people in Australia probably already know about this or gamers in Australia, but everyone else, you can watch this video online. There's no like region locking or anything. So go to the show notes and uh, follow the link to the good game thing. And uh, I guess pick a segment and watch it. There's a little bit of the silliness in the segments that reminds me of like, oh, we got to be goofy and broad. They can't just talk about the games, but still, like I said, way, way better than anything I've seen on US TV. Maybe not quite up to the standards of the best stuff that's only online. Um. Let's say he likens it to it treats games the same way that cooking shows treat cooking or gardening shows treat gardening. Uh, and I think that's a fair assessment because I bet like if you're a hardcore or cooking type guy, a lot of the cooking shows like you roll your eyes at it, you're like whatever. But it's still, you know, it's not completely embarrassing. Like I, for example, watch lots of cooking shows. I'm not an expert chef or anything, but I watch them. And it's I would imagine that non gamers or casual gamers would find these gaming shows acceptable in the same way that I find cooking shows interesting and acceptable because like i'm not a super duper chef so i don't know you're probably a giada uh, fan right am i right her head is too big mm. i hadn't noticed it's way too big okay sometimes she makes good things but a lot of her stuff is like california italian and that bothers me what the italian do you prefer uh northeastern italian american that's what i want okay all right, and speaking of great gaming videos online, this is something that I, I did I mention many shows ago. Maybe I did, but it keeps coming up. In fact, I just tweeted it to someone this morning. It just comes up forever and ever. Uh, this is a, a set of great gaming videos that I found, I don't know, a couple months ago, maybe last year, maybe, uh, by someone named Ego Raptor. And I, this, is, <laughs> this is the the problem I have. Like, I go to these things. Like, right, I'm going to put this link in the show notes. I go to the thing. I'm like, okay, for my notes, I want to write down the name of the guy who made this thing. Right. And it's such a problem. I have such a problem finding people's names. Everyone wants to go by their super secret thing, right? So I go to the guy. I go to his YouTube page. Nope, his YouTube handle is Ego Raptor. He has no real name associated with it. Then I got to like Google him and find out all his pages. And I find his eventually find his website, EgoRaptor.net. Uh, and it's a flash website and it has a bunch of stuff. And I'm like, what is your name? Where is the about screen? Show me the person behind this. And eventually there's like a mouse over that pops up this thing in the flash widget that says the person's name, but it says it in such a stylized font. It's like, is that O-R-I-N? A-R-I-N? I can't read it and I can't copy and paste the text because it's flash. So, you know, I'm, I can't tell what this person's name is. Why is it so hard to find people's names online? I get incredibly frustrated by this. If you are, it's not like you're a secret uh, anonymous person. You are a person trying to get your name out there. You are creating things for consumption. And you're like, hey, look at me. I make cool stuff. Put your name out there. No one's going to hire Ego Raptor. They want to know who you are. Uh, Tumblr pages are the worst. It's just page after page of Tumblr posts. And there's no about me page. There's, no, there's just an email address. There's no name, first name, last name. If you're trying to be a person out there who's, you know, hire me for my services, I want to become famous or whatever, don't have a weird pseudonym. Well, John, don't you think that this might just be an age difference thing? Because I've seen this over and over again that people um, in their currently, presently in their 20s, late teens, early 20s, that they have much more of, they, they identify much more with that name uh, that is a pseudonym, that is a made up name. And that they actually believe in many ways or want that to be their identity. And it's not so much that they're doing it f to be anonymous. They're doing it because they, like, they associate with that name the way that some people might associate with their World of Warcraft avatar in and, and, and maybe a way that's unhealthy. But I remember that there was a, a friend, I won't call this person out, but they used a ridiculous, ridic more ridiculous than Eagle Raptor. But that was, that was their name everywhere. 
they they never used their real name. I knew the person's real name, but they always used this pseudonym and it was ridiculous. And and me being probably 10 years older than the person, I said like, do you really think uh, like uh, a company is going to hire you with with this name? And he's, yeah, I see. I just added there was a he. He said, uh, he said, if they don't want to hire me under that name, then I don't want them as a customer. Yeah, that's of course everyone wants to have like the super secret code names and your your weird online aliases like that. Of course, that's going to happen. But I think once you make the transition to trying to show the world that you have something to offer, that you make cool videos, that you are write you know interesting programs, that you're going to publish something on a website, unless there's a reason for you to be anonymous, obviously, like you're you know you're mini Microsoft or you're some sort of informant or insider on industry. Like there are reasons for anonymity, but this, I couldn't see any reason for this person to be anonymous. It's like, you're making cool videos about gaming. People want to know about it. Yeah. You might want to have a handle, but it should be easy to find your name. As many people in the chat room point out, yes, I eventually did find his name. Like, you know, you go through all the things. Okay. Let me check his Tumblr page. Let me check his Twitter page. Eventually on the Twitter page, I found the thing. And apparently if I had continued to dig through the flash thing on eoraptor.net, I would have found an about page too. Uh, but yeah, I've, Twitter was my, you know, he has a bunch of links like, here's my Facebook page, here's my this page, here's my that page. I, I don't think I even tried the Facebook one because I try to avoid that. But I think Facebook makes you have uh, names. But, I, you know, th- this person, I found the name. It's Aaron Hansen, A-R-I-N Hansen. Uh, but it, the fact that I couldn't find it immediately and that I had to keep digging for it bothers me. People, put your name out there. Just on everything that you ever do, if you have a big website where you are going to write things, unless there's a reason for you to be anonymous, if you're trying to say, look at me, I write cool stuff, Put your name on it, please. Somewhere, anywhere. Say who you are. That's all I ask. Same thing with the Twitter people. People tweet me stuff and I go look at their Twitter account and all I see is like they don't have a real name put in. I, I don't like it's there are perfectly valid reasons for it, but I think once you once you start trying to hawk your wares to the world and make a name for yourself, make it your actual name. Because you know, very it, few people get to have this alias. John, I think it's there's also the similar thing that goes on, and I've I've written about this with the whole avatar thing that I, I really highly recommend to people that if you're not a company, if you're a human being, if you're a person, not a bot of some kind, but if you're a real person and you're, you have a Twitter account or whatever, you should use your a picture of you that is visible as your avatar. And that allows people to associate a human being with you. It eliminates a lot of hostility and negativity, but it also means that there's a good chance that when people meet you, at a conference or at an event or at the local Mac users group or whatever it is that they're going to recognize, Oh yeah, you're that guy who said that funny thing or that smart thing on Twitter instead of, Oh, your avatar is a cactus, but okay. You know, it just, it doesn't make sense. Your, your avatar, you actually went to the local Sears and got some, some photos done of yourself, a headshot just for this purpose. We should have a whole show about the, the racket of family photos. Yeah. It wasn't a Sears, but yeah, we do regular. Oh, I thought you went to like a from it. Like a yeah, it's from a family photo place. Okay. You know, do you go to a family local family photo place? No, no, no. You get good pictures out of it, but boy, it costs a lot of money. I like the background I, that you chose for yours. Yeah, I tried to mask out the background, but my Photoshop skills are insufficient. Uh, <laughs> why would you want to? Well, I just wanted you, to have. I wanted to have options. You can put me in Paris or something like that. You want to? You know, be able to <laughs> right, Paris. In space, on the moon, you know, all sorts of things you can imagine. Yeah, so uh, I don't want people sending me angry emails saying that I should respect on- anonymity online and everything. I, I totally recognize that there are reasons to be anonymous. Uh, where I get frustrated is where I see no reason for anonymity. 
there's no stated reason for anonymity and I see none and it seems counter to the efforts of that person to get their name out there. And if your name really is Ego Raptor and you've legally changed it, then, then fine. And if you're really going to go by that, have a fact page that says, what's your real name? Well, I just prefer to go by Ego Raptor because at least that's something <laughs> like I just want to find an explanation. I don't want to not be able to find it just because like it's buried and they didn't see it was important to get it out there. So uh, but this is a big sidebar. Uh, I'm sorry, Aaron Hansen, if you ever listen to this, if you're upset that I'm complaining that I couldn't find your name. Oh, I just go to my Twitter page. It's right there. You're right. I did eventually find it. But the fact that it wasn't immediately obvious from from your YouTube videos, from, you know, your your homepage with that big flash thing. And I could well, mostly because I couldn't read the font. I couldn't tell if it was an A or an O because O-R-I-N and A-R-I-N are both strange names to me. So. Do you do you find no answer acceptable for why someone might want to be anonymous? No, I'm sorry. There's t- many, many perfectly valid reasons for anonymity online. Uh, I just think it runs counter to trying to become known for producing some some work or something. Unless, unless again, unless the reason is tied up with that. Like if you have a blog where you type, write inside information about Microsoft where you work, obviously you better be anonymous so they're going to find you and fire you. Uh, and, you know, many other reasons why you definitely need to be anonymous online. That's why I disagree with the Google Plus idea where you have to have real names and everything. That's obviously a terrible idea for something that's supposed to be of general use. Uh, but in, in the case of putting work out online and making a name for yourself, I mean, like take, take Gruber and Daring Fireball. Daring Fireball is like you know, a silly name or whatever, but you go to that site, you have no problem figuring out who writes that site, right? It's, it's right there. There's an about page. You can read all about it. It says who the person is. I don't think you need a picture. I don't get tied up in that. I don't really care what people look like or if that, you know, if they want to have some privacy by having people not know what they look like. Again, that may run counter to you trying to get a job or something like that. It depends on what your goals are, but certainly you attach your name to your work. All right, but uh, oh, it's asking about the macalope. Yeah, that's another reason for anonymity because that's part of the shtick. Mac the knife, the macalope. That's the reason why you definitely want to be anonymous. That's part of the thing. Obviously, I'm not going to say, oh, the macalope needs to have a name on there. Um, but you, you will deny again that it's you. I will make no comment one way or the other about who the macalope is. Okay. As, as Merlin would say in his attempt to sound techie, I will return null. <laughs> which really makes no sense technology wise but he likes to say it i'm amused what when he does what do you mean it doesn't make any sense if you have really a, you can have a method that returns null he doesn't he doesn't even know what null is though <laughs> it's just <laughs> he just likes to say it and really without any context it's pretty much meaningless <laughs> but he's trying to use it in a, in a generic technology concept without pinning down what the context actually is anyway i think he would he would be surprised and shocked to learn that there is no null in ruby Maybe he would be. We got a whole show about uh, three value logic and the dangers thereof. Okay. All right. Uh, but so yeah, finally, getting back to this actual thing, Mister Ego Raptor. Uh, the, the what I was trying to talk about was uh, great online videos uh, by gamers for gamers, and he has a series called Sequelitis on YouTube that is uh, too short. I think it's only maybe three, four episodes or so. They're all great, but one in particular uh, I thought was great. And if if you watch that Australian TV show thing and, and look and say, hey, this is pretty good, but why are you saying this is not as good as the online stuff? I'll show you an example of what I'm looking for, and that would be sequelitis. The link is in the show notes. Uh, warning, there is lots of cursing. This is not safe for work or young children. Do not go watch sequelitis with your young children or if you are a young child because it is not something that you could air on television for a very good reason. Uh, but the particular episode 
uh, that I thought was relevant uh, was because it shows how a, a well-known, among gamers anyway, old school game, which is much too hard for, for most people to do these days and also much less forgiving the games today. One of these well-known games implemented its difficulty in learning ramp. We talked in the past show about like the learning ramp of like some games. They're very difficult to get into and other games kind of take you along and say, oh, I will teach you how to use this system. I'll teach you how to do this system so that you can try to be more successful in the game. And how I was saying, uh, maybe it seems like you'd want to have a smooth learning ramp, but maybe that's even more cruel because if you lead someone into 10, 15, 20 hours of gameplay and then eventually the game gets too hard, they've wasted all this time and they can't they can't finish consuming the game. It's like it's like getting someone three quarters into a mystery novel and then them having an inability to find out what happens in the end or to do it themselves. So that is kind of cruel. So uh, the difficulty ramp uh, demonstration uh, uh, in this thing is going back to a Mega Man games or the past Mega Man games, which like I said, are much too hard for most people these days. Uh, and I put the link to the episode in the show notes. Uh, it, a lot, it spends a lot of time contrasting the way old school games did their learning ramp with the way modern games do. And I think I've talked about in this past shows as well with the modern games trying to hold your hand more because they want broader appeal and saying, this is how you look up and down and push this button to shoot your gun. Good. Shoot that target. Now turn your head to the left. Shoot that target. Very good. And they have these tutorial levels and they try to, you know, coordinate it into the game or a training level or pretend you're coming out of cryo sleep and testing your systems and all sorts of strange things or like an avatar character who pops up and says those red buttons do this don't forget that you can run over health to get more you know all sorts of stuff like that 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 gamers find kind of annoying and the reason those things exist is because their games are trying to find a broader appeal they don't want to dumb themselves down so hardcore gamers don't buy them but they don't want to make them too difficult for regular people to buy them uh so this this video is ties back to topics that we passed, talked about on past shows and also I think is an example of great online video by gamers for gamers that probably would totally not fly on regular television. And this is one of the things uh, that uh, appeals to me as a gamer and I hope other gamers, gamers, if you haven't seen it, you should take a look at it. And the final tie-in to this is that Michael Lopp, speaking of somebody with an alias, a.k.a. Rans in Repose. I don't remember. Was Rans ever like a secret code name thing or did everyone always know it was Michael Lopp? I, I always knew it was Michael Lopp, but I might have come on board late. I came on board late, definitely, so I don't know the answer to that. I've always known. Yeah. I, I, and is he still working at Apple? I think so. I think he does. I mean, that's one of the reasons you might want to be anonymous is if you work at Apple and you're going to say stuff about technology and you don't want to get it's in trouble reason. or whatever. But, uh, but anyway, he's, he's, he's not really anonymous. Uh, but his website, he had a recent article called Two Universes that talks about uh, not just the learning curve, but engagement in both games and non-games. Uh, so, so what I'm saying is he doesn't work at Apple. He works at Palantir. Pal- no, Palantir? That's news to me. Is it Palantir? I, I guess so. Is that how you pronounce that? Yeah. According according to S. Williams in the chat room, who knows if that's true. But uh, either way, his his post recently that was widely circulated was about uh, he, he used the game Portal as an example of how the Portal game drops you into a situation that you don't understand and slowly teaches you the game system. He doesn't spend much time dwelling on the fact that, well, if you can't figure out how to look up, down, left, right or move, that none of this learning is going to help you because you're going to spend your whole time staring at the floor in the corner of the room, not being able to figure out where the hell you are or how to get anywhere. Uh, but assuming you meet this minimum barrier, saying, oh, uh, Portal teaches you how the game system works and slowly levels up to show you, okay, you figured out how this works. Well, what about that? They start you off with just 
one side of the portal, and then you do two sides, and you figure out what happens if you put the portal in different places by strictly controlling what you can do in each situation. They don't. They try to give you challenges that are just slightly ahead of where you uh, what you're able to do now, and that's an example of good ramping. And he he contrasts it with uh, software applications, which have to do the same type of thing, where they uh, not not for like so that you don't find it too difficult, but they want to keep you engaged. They want you to be successful in using this program to do what you want. So they want to slowly reveal their functionality. He gives the uh, iOS uh, iPhoto for iOS as a counterexample, saying, "Well, if you have to put all these little help things all over, maybe that's uh, maybe your interface is a little bit too daunting to begin with." Uh, and how software design could take some lessons from game design, not in the the dirty word gamification, which he talks about. Like when you say gamification, everyone thinks thinks douchey thoughts. Uh, like, oh, you know, try, trying to take advantage of the weaknesses of, of human nature to uh, get extract money from somebody or shove something down their throat. He says that, you know, the light side of gamification, the way games try to keep you engaged and enjoying software applications can do the exact same thing. Try to keep you engaged in the, in the interface, try to let you slowly discover things uh, so that you enjoy using the application and are successful in using it to create things. Uh, so that was an interesting article. Definitely. Uh, much less gamer focused than something uh, like sequelitis so i encourage people to look at the sequelitis video i linked it's the mega man 10 one or mega man x i don't know how do you pronounce uh, the title of that thing mac os 10 has ruined me on any title that has an x in it i always say 10 now uh, so contrast the, the the mega man x video with that uh the michael opp brands and repose two universes article because this to me uh, like if you find if you find michael opp's thing speaks to you more you're probably more to more to the casual normal side of the of the gaming spectrum and if you find sequelitis speaks to you more you're probably much farther on the uh gamer side of the perspective and both of them are saying similar things uh in very different mediums in very different ways to very different audiences that's why i want to include both of those point counterpoint right not even counterpoint. They're both saying the same thing, but like you might only hear it's like a dog whistle. Do you hear? All right, you, you won't even hear the one side. You yeah. only hear the other side. Yeah, you watch Sequelitis. You're like, what the hell is this? Why is this guy cursing at me? And <laughs> but it might this, appeal to you. This video is promoting violence towards women and poor behavior. I don't like it. Uh, and and then other people are like Sequelitis. Yeah, totally thumbs up. And they'll read they'll read the Ranzer posting. I'm like, who is this guy talking about business or something? Boring. Uh, I like both of them because I, I exist in two worlds apparently. All right, let's do our first sponsor, John. Go for it. Hover.com. That's it. I don't know. Do you need to say anything else? I think you do. Okay, well, people should know this already, but if they don't, it, pay attention because this is, this is really cool. Simplified domain management. The most elegant, clean, straightforward interface you've ever seen. There's a little search box. You type in a, a keyword or the domain name that you like, and it comes back. And it shows you, oh, is the .com available? Is the .net available? You want to register it? Do it. Oh, they're not available? Here's some alternatives that we came up with that you might think are pretty cool. And you can register them right there. You don't have to uncheck a billion boxes so that you don't get overcharged or charged for things that you don't want. There's nothing misleading about the site. They make it incredibly easy to go in and get the domain name that you want. But it's not just the .com, .net. I mean, they've got all of them. They've got... The .co, they've got the TV, they've got org, info, Moby, which I know is John's favorite, WS, you name it. You go in there, you register them, and there's unlimited domain name forwarding. There's a no charge for uh, who is privacy ever. They have really great, super easy to use domain editing. They go to advanced DNS management. They've really got it all. And if you don't like the pain of transferring your domain name over, which once you use Hover, you're going to want to 
transfer it. Trust me. They'll do they'll do the whole domain name transfer for you. And they they have this really cool thing. You can get you obviously once you register the domain, how do you get your email set up for it? Well, yes, you can go to another service, you can pay a separate service, you can use a free service, or you can use their really awesome email services, which they have webmail that you can do email forwarding. You get like two gig of storage. You can use pop or IMAP. Uh, and it's very, very affordable. And these guys are great, super reliable. And of course there's a coupon hover.com slash Dan sent me, or you can just use the code Dan sent me when you go there to register your domain and you get 10% off of everything, anything. And I think, uh, I think they don't, they don't seem to care if I use the coupon either. So you should. But anyway, go check it out. Hover.com slash Dan sent me. Webmail. All right. We're done with the gaming follow-up section. Wow. Only only 30-something minutes in. Well, we had non-game stuff before that, too. <laughs> so uh, last show, we talked a little bit about uh, App Store in-app purchases and Apple's 30% cut in the context of that Dropbox SDK controversy about apps being rejected because they linked to the Dropbox SDK, which eventually could possibly lead you to a page where you might sign up for Dropbox. And Apple didn't like applications asking for money and going through a mechanism other than uh, Apple's own purchase system. Uh, one of the things I suggested when we started talking, eventually talking about ebooks was uh, we both kind of agreed that Apple is not expecting this to be a big revenue stream. They just kind of want to break even uh, and that the revenue stream such as it is, is not particularly big in the grand scheme of things. Uh, and since it makes it impossible for people like uh, the Amazon Kindle app to sell their ebooks in the application, that's a bummer for the user experience because you just want to buy the books inside the app. It just makes sense. And one of the ideas I threw out there is like, okay, so maybe what if Apple takes a 0% cut of ebook sales through the Kindle app? Uh, after all, we just said that that revenue stream is not that important. So fine, if it's not that important, just cut it out entirely. And that was kind of a thought exercise. And a couple of things I brought up is like, well, just because it's not that important, it doesn't mean that it might not someday be important. If you drop it to zero, it's really hard to bring it back to 30% later and uh, all sorts of other reasons. Uh, but the reason a lot of readers, uh, listeners, sorry, uh, wrote in to suggest and that I didn't mention that I, it was kind of implicit, but it's worth worth making explicit is that this zero percent cut thing would have to only be for for content, right? It would, it would have to be for things like ebooks uh, because what Apple wouldn't want to do is say, oh, zero percent for uh, cut for in-app purchases, and then every single application just becomes free, and everything you do in it is an in-app purchase because hey, you know, like wh- why sell your app for for ten bucks? and have to give Apple three when you can sell your app for $0 and then do a $10 in-app purchase the first time the thing launches and have to give Apple 0%. Obviously, uh, that would be very bad because Apple does need to have some income to support the App Store business. If you entirely subsidize it with the rest of their business, that's a risk because what if the other parts of your business change in proportion to this part of your business? Then you have uh, some serious problems. Um, And it also would be a terrible, convoluted, confusing experience for users because it's like every time i go into uh, uh, an application it says oh well welcome to blah 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 you paid zero dollars for this application but to actually use it you have to give us money and it's this strange experience it's not particularly friendly so obviously if apple did this zero percent cut thing they would have to do it just for the things we were talking about things like ebooks and content and not say hey free for all this is an easy way for you to bypass our 30 percent cut and everything uh Another thing people wrote in to uh, tell me about was the idea that 
you can already buy lots of things in applications without giving Apple a cut. Uh, so you've got the eBay application or the Amazon application. You want to buy rolls of, uh, of paper towels or a new stereo system or whatever. Uh, you can buy stuff or the eBay app. I've bought stuff on the eBay iOS app using PayPal or a credit card or whatever you want. And Apple is not buy? getting a cut of those. What did you buy? Uh, eBay auction for, God, I don't remember what it was. I don't, I don't really see you as an eBay with all of your privacy concerns. I just can't imagine you. Uh, what are privacy concerns? You're the one who wants to get off Google. I I'm do. not the one fleeing Google because of, oh, I don't like them looking at my stuff. That's you, not me. But no, I, the eBay What'd you get? Stick, What'd you get over there at eBay? sticks in my mind because, uh, you know, eBay auction, I just bid on for the hell of it or whatever. Uh, and I was in the bathroom and had my iPod with me. And I realized, oh, that auction <laughs> is ending soon. And I won the auction from the toilet. So <laughs> like, I better go, you know, I up my bid by a dollar with like a, with 30 seconds to go. And, and I got the thing. I don't remember what it was. It was probably some, anything I'm buying on eBay has got to be some like old computer peripheral or something. Uh -huh. Maybe it was like an old video card for one of my old books or something. I can't imagine the title suggestions that will yeah. come out there. Uh, <laughs> and so like Amazon.com's app, for example, if you go to people like, hey, you can buy stuff on the Amazon's app, maybe that's a way to buy Kindle books. Well, if you go to the Amazon app and try to buy a Kindle book on it, the Amazon mobile application, not like their website or a web app or anything like that. But if you go to the Amazon mobile application and try to buy uh, a Kindle book, all I ever see on the page is add to wish list. You don't have the buy button, right? Uh, and Mark Biswas writes in to say that the Pebble guys, you know, the guys making that Kickstarter watch thing i don't even know pebble much about it because i don't yeah i don't know too much about you I'm back not into it watches. no i don't i don't wear a watch i'm not into watches i wouldn't wear that one uh but if you like that watch more power to you but uh, he writes in to say that the pebble guys are planning to have their own app store that you can use to buy apps and then transfer them to your watch uh, via bluetooth and they claim that it'll, it'll obey the app store rules but uh that's an instance where you have to wonder if Apple's going to allow that without taking a, a cut of the stuff uh so the question is, what's what's the deal there? Why, if, if Apple wants a thirty percent cut or everything, how come there's all these? Because I was saying, uh, Apple wants the the experience of giving money when you launch an app to go through Apple stuff. They don't want it to have a whole bunch of different ways for you to beg for money. Uh, but here are these iOS applications that you can launch and pay for things, and Apple doesn't get a cut and it doesn't go through Apple's payment service. Uh, so the first thing is, Apple makes the rules, and they don't always necessarily share their reasoning for those rules. So we can't say definitively, oh, this is why Apple does this. You know, we can't we can't uh, ascribe their motivations. But by looking at what the rule system is, it seems pretty clear that they want to control the experience of purchases within applications that change the content or experience of iOS applications. Right? They don't they don't care if you're buying a house using your iOS application. They're not going to ask for a thirty percent cut of that. They don't want a thirty percent cut of the the roll of toilet paper that you buy on Amazon or something. But if you're buying something that like I would say runs on the phone, but it doesn't have to be an executable that that changes an application like that's part of that, that it is something you can imagine being for sale in the app store. There's either an application itself or things to be consumed by an application. So that includes obviously the purchases of the applications themselves, adding features to an application. That's what we think of as an app purchase like, oh, you know, do an app purchase and unlock the pro version of this thing uh, or content like levels for games. Are, you know, consumables of software and ebooks fall under that category. Ebooks are consumables of the the reader application. You can buy a paper book because it has it does not uh, add an application to your home screen or augment their existing application. It's not software. It's not part of the app store, right? So you can use an app to do stuff outside of the app store. But once you start 
buying things that seem like they should be part of the App Store, that's when Apple is taking the cut. And that's the experience uh, Apple wants to control. And again, like I said last show, it's not like, oh, we don't want apps begging for money. They don't want you to be afraid to participate in the App Store ecosystem of the things you buy in the App Store. What do you buy in the App Store? You buy applications and you buy content for those applications. And the big benefit to everybody is if people are not afraid to give money, they're not afraid to download apps, not afraid to install apps, not afraid to get upgrades to apps, not afraid to get new levels for their games. That's the ecosystem that Apple wants to be healthy and vibrant and free of fear. Uh, Apple so far seems less concerned with the idea that people are going to sell applications through which you buy you know, physical goods or buy houses or bid on auctions and stuff like that that gives you things that are completely outside the app store. You get a coffee machine or whatever. Apple is not concerned that people be afraid to buy coffee machines through applications that buy in the app store. They are very concerned that people feel safe buying things that are consumed uh, by the app store. David Smith in the chat room said that the review guidelines, which I didn't have time to look up, but he seems to have either done it for me or is summarizing it. The review guidelines explicitly state that in-app purchase must be used for content functionality or services in the app, but may not be used for physical goods or services outside the application. So not only does Apple not care if you don't use the system, it doesn't want you to use in-app purchase for, you know, coffee machines and stuff like that. Uh, and, and that makes me think that, that that reinforces the notion that Apple wants the App Store ecosystem to feel like a safe place to do things within the App Store ecosystem. Anything outside of it, fine, but they don't want people taking advantage of the infrastructure they've made to buy and sell software and software features and use it to do exactly the same thing, but not give Apple a cut of it. Uh, and then have a million different people trying to, you know, like, like the city, jailbreak store type thing. That's, right. that's the big version. Imagine if everyone could have their own little, Hey, we have our own little internal store for selling levels and stuff like that. Uh, uh, and you can you bought this application and now this opens up a new world of buying a bunch of mini applications. So we don't give Apple a cut of that. And we have our own weird thing and we take your credit card and yeah. Uh, so they're trying to create a, a, a safe, closed ecosystem, but only for things that the App Store would conceivably sell, not for random other stuff. Uh, one more on the Dropbox thing. Uh, this is Mustafa Hamwi, who provided a pronunciation. Go, Mustafa. Uh, he says that I paint a picture of, uh, talking about the Dropbox stuff, of an Apple that wants to close the door on scammers, but he says he was listening to the argument and he couldn't dismiss the voice in his head that was going, BS, BS, BS. Dropbox is a well-known company that many users love, not some dark alley peddler. Why can't Apple have something like Mountain Lion's Gatekeeper to shut the door on on the kind of apps John was talking about uh, and the ones that keep asking for money? So he, like many people, cannot get around the idea that there was something about this specific to Dropbox. That it just sound, it sounded like BS that I was saying that this really actually, I think, a more a different explanation for this than the idea that, oh, Dropbox is a competitor to Apple. Uh, and, you know, why, why can't they just do something like a developer ID system or gatekeeper or whatever to say, well, we can keep out the scammers, but other people can do it. Uh, the first thing I'll say about this type of deal is that, yeah, Apple does make the rules, but right or wrong, good idea or bad idea. So far, Apple has mostly tried to avoid playing favorites in the App Store when possible. Obviously, they do. They do have favorites, like certain big, well-known companies get things that other people don't get, but it seems like Apple is trying to have one set of rules and then a set of exceptions rather than, you know, every individual person having something for sale in the app store negotiates their own deal. And, you know, every, there's a huge variety of deals. It's like, well, what deal do you have? What deal do you have? They're kind of saying there's one set of rules. And then in certain situations for, you know, very special cases, we will do exceptions. So 
that seems to be what Apple's doing. I don't necessarily think that's the best idea or the worst idea. There are advantages and disadvantages to it, but thus far, that seems like what Apple is doing. So this would be a significant change in App Store policy where you're saying, okay, uh, we'll let Dropbox have a page that lets you sign up for Dropbox and sells you like a software or a service, even though we don't let other people do it because we trust Dropbox and they're important. And if you would like to do that, well, then we'll have to negotiate a deal with that. And, you know, the, the idea that it's a, a mostly level playing field and that everyone is screwed by the same stupid arbitrary rules more or less at the same time is the illusion that Apple is mostly maintaining. You know, it's not really the case because sometimes apps go in that would have been rejected, but they haven't come up for review. And maybe the next time their version goes, you know, it it's not a perfect system, but I think that's what Apple is going for. They just really want to have one set of rules and very few exceptions. Uh, so that makes me think that that type of scenario where they would have sort of a trusted relationship with some people and those people could ask for money, but the other people don't, that Apple's not quite ready to sign up for that yet. Uh, Mustafa continues, it's completely puzzling to me that you guys just casually ignoring the strategic nature of iCloud's rivalry with Dropbox and brushing it under the carpet as if it has absolutely no bearing in the latest crackdown. Uh, it's one thing to give Apple the benefit of the doubt and completely another to just ignore mentioning this obvious incentive. I think we mentioned it a little bit. I think I mentioned it in the context of saying how I didn't think that was the main motivation. Maybe we didn't dwell on it too much, but iCloud obviously competes with Dropbox. Like that, Dropbox is uh, a competitor. But in this case, this particular rejection, this class of rejections, remember they weren't rejecting Dropbox applications itself. They were rejecting applications to integrate with Dropbox. But either way, I think these rejections fit within an existing framework that we've seen. We've seen rejections like this before, where people do something that takes you to a website that gives you money or something like that. And in the past, they've been for competitors as well. It's like, oh, look, they're, they're not letting people go to Amazon.com. It's because they've got it at the iBook store. But uh, anything like that, that this the idea that they want to control in-app purchases of things that are consumables or that could possibly be sold through the app store, that's not a new thing. And I think these rejections fit into that. Uh, and on the iCloud versus Dropbox thing, when Apple starts to leverage its platform ownership to push out Dropbox, you'll know it. Like, I'm not saying that Apple is above this and that they're such nice people, they're not going to do this. Mm. If and when Apple decides, okay, we've had enough of this Dropbox competition thing, we really want to push iCloud, they're not going to do it in like some, oh, what if what if we reject applications because they're using in-app parking like It's like, you know, <laughs> we can get them on the letter of the law and it'll be like, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Oh, it just happened, you know, sorry. Nothing to do with Dropbox. They have no reason to be, you know, uh, sneaky or coy about it. They'll just come right out and say, okay, no file access except for local or iCloud. If, you're, if your application accesses files over the network that uses anything other than iCloud, you are rejected. That's how they'll do it. You'll know when they go after Dropbox, right? Mm-hmm. It's not going to be, they would never do it in a sideways kind of uh, on the sly. It always is just a side effect of whatever. We can't control it. They have no qualms about saying we decided, we've decided there should be no, uh, <laughs> there should be no experiences of the file system or network files except for through iCloud because that's the experience you want to do. It won't be subtle. Uh, so, for many reasons, I think that this this idea that the Dropbox rejections have anything to do with the nature of Dropbox business is just totally wrong. Not because Apple is super awesome and nice and would never do that, but simply because the other explanations fit better. Uh, and and I think I think the possibility of Apple having a, a problem with Dropbox is very real. Like they tried to buy them uh, back when Jobs was still alive, and that didn't work out. And they're trying to do their own thing now. And if their own thing doesn't work out. You know, they they also tried to do a deal with Facebook on the ping thing. Remember that? Yeah, that's right. I remember that. That was and, a not very successful integration. Well, they didn't like estimation. the deal fell through uh, for unknown reasons, right? Yeah, they there was never they never announced why it didn't happen. But if, for people, everybody remembers how awful ping 
was by itself. And I think they were hoping that having that integration with Facebook would have been better. Now, they have had what I think most people would agree is a pretty successful integration with Twitter in iOS across the board, uh, but not Facebook. Yeah, and uh, like, I don't even remember if that was just rumors or whatever, but it's clear that Ping <laughs> fell on its face. Yeah. Bummer. Uh, and drop and Dropbox, like they, you know, we'll, we'll drop buy Dropbox and that will help us. Well, they didn't work out. They didn't take the deal and they didn't want to, you know, whatever. So well, you say that, that will help us. Do you think they wanted to buy Dropbox because it would help them or because they did, they just wanted to eliminate the competition or both? But definitely both. Uh, but yeah, it, w- it would have been a, a double win for them. Uh, but instead, they're doing they're going their own way, right? And so, if it turns out that like Ping, that the iCloud, like three or four years from now, just can't get anywhere relative to you know the, the Ping, it was case in the case of like it's not getting anywhere because it's not integrated with Facebook. Well, if just everyone just keeps using Dropbox, and Apple really thinks it's strategically important for iCloud to uh, to do better, they they're the platform owner. They can always pull out the big hammer. I mean, people won't like it. People will complain, and it, it, you can argue about whether it'll be a benefit for them in the long run or not. But it's a tool available to them, and that. That could come to a head eventually, and I don't know what the resolution of that might be, but it's it's out there. Uh, let's see, one more on... Oh, and speaking of iOS, uh, Daniel Jaxi, J-A-K-S-I. Uh, he says he's a, a father, and he uh, appreciates iOS's ability to uh, restrict in-app purchases from uh, applications so mm-hmm. his kids can't accidentally buy things. This is another example of if you don't control the purchase of software applications and features, like centrally, you can't provide an OS level feature that says, okay, you can configure this device so it's safe for your kid to use so he doesn't like run up huge charges on your credit card, right? Uh, you can't do that if if it's a free-for-all and everybody does their own payment. Like it's not, this is an advantage. It has nothing to do with a cut. Even if it was a 0% cut, just using a single central mechanism, not like, oh, I'm a I'm a registered developer and I'm, you can trust me. I'm not going to be scamming people. They really want to control the experience through a central place uh, so that they can provide these type of OS features. And I don't know if uh, if Android, Android probably has something similar because they have their own Android market too. But having side channel stuff uh, lets people bypass everything about your system, not just the bad things, but also the good things. Uh, that, was, that was a good example. I, have, I haven't run into that yet because I don't think we have any games that allow in-app purchases. But if and when we do, it will be good to be able to turn that off. Uh, one final thing here. I don't even know if this is follow-up on. Maybe it's just a mini topic. It's got to be follow-up on something. I don't, and again, I don't remember. If I mentioned this before. You can stop me if I have or the chat room can tell me. Uh, oh, yeah. This is follow-up on last show when I was talking about being impatient while using computers. Right. Anytime I'm waiting for the computer to do something. And I made uh, I made a reference to this video, but didn't provide a link to it, I don't think. If I provided a link to it, then just tell me all I'm senile and, you know, you'll have double link to this thing. Uh, but it is a Microsoft Research video showing high-performance touch. I think I described it last time, where they're showing a touch screen with various amounts of lag between what your finger does and what the screen does in response to it. Mm. And I put the link in the show notes. I highly encourage everyone to look at it. This is an example of like we we all talk about, oh, you know, iOS, it was it was such a revolution because it's so much more responsive and it's not just like an incremental change where, okay, we had touch screens before and this one just a little bit faster. So what? When you cross a certain threshold, it really changes the nature of the experience in a fundamental way. It goes from something people will want to use to something people will not. And you're like, well, 
statistics wise, it's just like a 5% increase in responsiveness. But you've, once you've crossed that magic barrier, it's like, oh, now, now this feels snappy and right and, and feels good to use because it's responsive enough, right? And most people think, oh, well, you know, iOS is, is not laggy and doesn't stutter and is responsive. And, and it's like the, the gold star, AAA, you know, greatest implementation of that. And then Android is like a little bit more laggy and people don't like it. And Android versus iOS, people are always using this as a means of comparison saying, well, you know, I would never use that thing. It's too laggy and disgusting. I like this responsive thing. Uh, the mistake is assuming that iOS as it currently exists is fast enough. And you you know, I've hammered on this for a year. Nothing is ever fast enough, powerful enough, good enough, especially with computer interfaces. And I, I bet if you ask lots of people, is iOS responsive enough? Like when you flick from side to side or when you scroll, like, and they would say yes. And, and you can ask them, can you imagine it being more responsive? Some people will say, no, it does exactly what my finger does. Isn't that like, I couldn't like, or, or if it could be more responsive, I wouldn't notice because it's totally good enough and it would be pointless for to make it any better. It's like uh, getting to the music discussion of like increasing uh, sample rate and resolution or whatever. At a certain point, like, oh, it's, it's exceeding the limits of human hearing already. So right. let's not mess with it. Well, so the t- on the touch side, they'd say, well, you know, it's, I guess it could be better, but how could I even notice? It looks perfect now, right? Uh, and I don't feel that way, obviously. I feel it is a fundamental difference between not responsive enough and responsive enough, but we've still got a long way to go. I get frustrated in iOS when things don't react immediately to my finger and don't follow my finger uh, the right way. How often so, is that a is that a problem for you? Most apps, some apps, some of the time, all the time? All the time, every app. <laughs> like, <laughs> Why it, am I not surprised? And it really bothers me. And here's the weird thing. I feel it more on small screen devices than I do on big ones. It makes no sense. Like when I'm using my wife's iPhone 4S, the 4S is faster. Is it faster than the iPad 2? I think it is, isn't it? It's it At the very least, it's equally fast CPU wise. And it's pushing fewer pixels around. So why is it that I have more applications that feel slower on the iPhone 4S? My theory is that when I see an entire 10 inch screen worth of pixels move, it gives me the impression of higher performance than it actually is simply because it's many more pixels moving at once. And it's like, wow, look at that. I'm moving this thing effortlessly. And like, it's like when you pick up something that's very dense, but small, but actually weighs less than something that's larger, but less dense, the larger, but less dense thing feels lighter. I think it's some kind of phenomenon like that, where I expect the big thing to be slower because it's moving more like physically moving more, obviously not, you know, but like the, the physical, the way our brains work, the idea that when we see something large and it moves effortlessly, it feels like it's more responsive than the small thing moving with the same amount of effort, right? That's my theory. But both of them feel much too slow to me. I don't like waiting for anything. I don't like when things are not responsive. And it happens all the time in every single application. It's not anyone's fault. It's just the way it is, right? So this Microsoft Research video shows, like, I don't know what the technology they're using for the screen, but they have the sample screen where they can crank down the latency, and it starts off at 100 milliseconds, which is what most what they say most tablet devices have now. I'm assuming they're referring to like the iPad and iOS because Microsoft always, is always referring to iOS devices without ever naming them. Uh, but I'm sure it applies to Android as well. And the guy wiggles his finger around and a square follows the video, uh, follows his finger, and you can see it lagging behind. Uh, and he shows a demo of an actual application. I don't know if it's a Android application or an iOS application. It didn't look too close, but it's a drawing app. And he, he draws a squiggly line. And you can totally see when he draws a squiggly line with his finger the line doesn't quite keep up with his finger. I mean, we've all seen this before in drawing apps, but I don't know how if it occurs to as many people that like, oh, this app is slow or something like that. It's it's a limitation of the you know the, the I/O stack and the input mechanism between your finger and the screen technology and and the driver stack and 
I don't know where the delay is. Is it delay in the screen? Is it delay in the driver stack? Is it is it just the combination of it all? But the delay is there. And on the screen, he cranks down the latency. Okay, that was 100 milliseconds. Now he's 50 milliseconds and he wiggles his finger around. Now he's 10 milliseconds and he wiggles his finger around. Uh, and his argument, and I find it pretty convincing from looking at the video, is that when you crank it down to one millisecond, you're going from 100 to one, you know, right? From one millisecond, there is a fundamental change in the nature of this interaction. Because now the the lag is so small that you really can't see it. There was a big jump from like, let's say, you know, 700 milliseconds to 100. That was There was a discontinuity there in how it feels. Once you get down to one millisecond, it feels totally different. And if you watch this video and see what it looks like when it's down at one millisecond, you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what I want. I want that. I don't know when that's coming or how long it will take to get here. Again, this is Microsoft Research, not any particular product uh, division. But I encourage everyone to look at that video and remember that nothing is ever fast enough or good enough. Uh, and that there will be and will continue to be more revolutions in user input and computing that are as fundamental and dramatic as the first time you use an iOS device was. Good old Microsoft Research. Never fast enough for you. I mean, well, I suppose eventually we'll, things could reach the limits of human perception, but we're just so far away from it in almost every possible way that, yeah, definitely not. I mean, you, you don't find that when you're using iOS devices. Sometimes you're just waiting for the device. You can't touch anywhere or you touch somewhere and you're like, oh, it's not done yet. I have to wait. You know, it's not, obviously what kind of apps is, are, you, are you using? Anything. Web browsers, Twitter clients. It's, you know, it's not... It's not ter- iOS, again, is the gold standard. It is the best, but it doesn't mean that there's not situations where that happens. You know, maybe I've become accustomed to it, but I can, yeah, I mean, any time that there's an app that's pulling data over an internet connection and using that data to refresh, whether it's, you know, TweetBot or something else, yeah, there's, there's definitely weight. But like if I'm using, I know you probably don't use the, the phone app, but it seems like that's pretty quick. It seems like when I'm just, you know, looking at that things that are on the phone where data isn't, being pulled to or from the internet seems like they're pretty fast. Twitter is a good example because uh, most people feel like scrolling is pretty good. And I still think scrolling would feel fundamentally different with one millisecond lag. I hope that video in the show notes is convincing in that regard. Now now I'm trying some apps, John, and they seem slow to me. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Thanks so much, man. Well, but see, but the thing I get with the Twitter apps is like, okay, so maybe it's acceptable and it's okay. But then what about when it's pulling new tweets and you're trying to scroll at the same time? Oh, and now you now it's getting angry because you know you, either you only have one core on your phone or you have two cores and they're already occupied with one drawing thread and one you know like you end up with contention because they're not as powerful as desktop uh, computer and sometimes you get that little stutter because like oh it was pulling stuff from the network and upgrading the ta- updating the table view while I was trying to scroll it stroll it and you get that little stutter and that breaks the connection between you imagining this is a real physical thing that's just a small example the network stuff obviously. You know, what are you going to do? The speed of light is a problem. If you get hitting a server in Japan, you got to wait, right? But just in terms of responsiveness, of always remaining responsive, part of that is multiple, you know, threading and all, the, all that good stuff. But not just that, but even when nothing else is going on and the thing is totally concentrating on following your finger, like you're drawing something in the, in the draw something game. Yeah. The change in lag from the existing 100 millisecond to 1 millisecond changes what it feels like to draw in a drawing application. Having never done it, but just looking at that video, I can see that that, that, that is a big change in, in how that would feel. What is All that right. in the back? Is that like a lawnmower? That is that is lawnmowers. I apologize for that, but the neighbors have people mowing their lawn right now. All my windows are closed and sealed up, but I do not have a soundproof house. All right, let's do our second sponsor while they're mowing out there. 
All right. Because they're probably going to do that side of the house and they're going to move on the next side of the house. See? Did you do that or did you mute it? I just muted. Yeah, guy, you you goosed me. Yeah, sorry. All right. uh, Let me tell you about Igloo Software. These guys are great. Been sponsoring us all week and, uh, and they have a really, really awesome service, which I'd love to tell you about. Igloo Software. Igloo is your digital workplace in the cloud. What does this mean? This means you get, you get to work with your team and your files in one place, and it doesn't matter where you are or where they are, whether you're inside or outside of a firewall, you now have a secure connection to all of your files and your team. Your files get individually encrypted in the back-end database. They have SSL so that when you connect, you, you can use that to connect to them securely. You can upload any kind of document that you want. You share it with your colleagues. You add comments. It has ratings. You can spread these things out between the different departments so that you can get approvals, and then you can lock in the final version. Very useful. There are different spaces for each of the departments or each of the different teams. You can set it up however you want. They get their own calendars. They get their own forums, blogs, document repositories. There's even a built-in Twitter-like status update thing, which is very cool. And it's entirely web-based. So this means it works on your Mac, works on your you know PC if you must use one, iPad, iPhone, whatever. You can work anywhere that you want. And they've got a drag-and-drop interface that uh, allows you to set up and maintain the site. It's really nice. Fully customizable. HTML and CSS widgets. There's an open API. they got JavaScript extensions. You name it. They thought of everything. We get a special URL that you go to, and you get a 30-day trial. And, John, they're giving away a SodaStream. And you, John, are eligible to win the SodaStream. I don't want, I don't want a SodaStream. I'm just saying you're eligible to win it. Maybe people in the audience would like to win one. Everyone else wants a SodaStream, obviously. If okay. we learned anything from the 5.5 network that I am the only person who doesn't want a SodaStream. Igloosoftware.com slash like an animal is the URL that they have set up. It's a special landing page just for hypercritical listeners. Igloosoftware.com slash like an animal. You get the trial. You can win a SodaStream. You don't have to have the trial to win the SodaStream. I mean, obviously, I think you should check it out. I think you'll like it. I think it's cool. Uh, but you can just go there and just try to win a soda stream if that's all you care to do. But in any case, go there, igloosoftware.com slash like an animal, show some support for, uh, for five by five, uh, in doing so. We appreciate it. Like an animal. I always visit these sponsors websites and I don't know if it's a conscious choice on your part or just the, the average quality of websites has gone up, but all these sponsors always have nice websites. Don't you find that? Like, isn't that, it's kind of judging a book by its cover kind of thing, and maybe we shouldn't sure. be doing this, but you go to a company's website and it, it looks nice, you know? It not, doesn't mean it looks like it looks like it was made by Apple or anything. It's just, it's like that someone paid attention to that website and they <laughs> made it nice and it's not, and I, maybe it's because all websites are getting better and people know about designers and can hire them now, but I still, I still see plenty of websites that are just gross and, uh, you know, but not the sponsors of the show. So but this is kind of like a, one of those things that we learn to, uh, you know, to associate in a cause and effect relationship. Nice website equals good company. I don't know if that relationship exists, but there seems definitely to be a correlation. Yeah. Anyway, these guys have a nice website. And I think I saw that their CEO was wearing shorts and a t-shirt. Wearing shorts and a t-shirt and drinking a mysterious beverage from a mug. A soda stream. It's carbonated water. Maybe. maybe. Massively overcarbonated water. <laughs> There's no limit to how much you can carbonate it. Kieran Healy in the chat room posted a, I don't know if he's real-time blogging this. This is a uh, blog post on his own site that gives an actual example from the ancient world of people complaining about kids that he remembered from his classics education, which is apparently happening where he lives. Is it in Sanskrit? Are you in Ireland? Uh, but anyway, it's from like uh, 
something like 200 BC, uh, provide a link in the show notes, actual complaints from the ancient world about kids these days. Is it in Gaelic? It is in English. Hmm. Not authentic. Well, I'm sure it's translated. All right, many topics. Or, or not so many. We'll see how we do. <laughs> Never know. Instagram. I keep pushing it off for 8 million shows. And now that everyone has gotten bored of Instagram and it's been talked about to death, now it's time for me to say 10 words about it. Uh, so as we know, many moons ago, Instagram was purchased by Facebook for $1 billion, pinky to mouth. Uh <laughs> And the fascinating thing about Instagram, obviously, is that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, they have no revenues. Is that your understanding? They have zero revenue? I, that is my understanding. They do not have any revenue. Like, not only do they not collect money from people, because the Instagram app is free, right? I'm so out of it that I don't actually yes, have uh, it. So. it, is, it I had it and deleted it, but yes, it is free. Right. So they didn't take money from people for their application. And as far as I know, they didn't take money from anyone. It wasn't advertising supported. They didn't take money from like Polaroid, used Polaroid camera companies or any like zero revenue. And so they went from not existing to being bought for a billion dollars in like, what was it, 18 months or some very short period of time, all the while taking no money from anybody for anything. And this makes people think about bubbles and think about what are they buying? And obviously, of course, you know, the, the answer is, well, they had, they had zero revenue, but they had millions of users and the users is what Facebook is buying. Or, or you know, maybe it's a, uh, a, a talent acquisition where they just want to buy the people uh, who made this great thing because obviously these people are able to go from nothing to making something that millions of people want to use in a short period of time. And those are exactly the kind of people Facebook would want. Uh, but you already mentioned in this show, as if you were our clairvoyant, the thing that immediately springs to my mind when I see deals like this, uh, and it's that, and I'm sure this was discussed before too, but this is always what I think about when I see deals like this. It's not that Facebook is acquiring these users because as many people pointed out, the overlap between Instagram users and people who have Facebook accounts is probably pretty big simply because the overlap between insert group of people here and have Facebook account is big no matter what, especially in America. Like I don't know how many, what percentage of the U.S. population has a Facebook account. It's pretty darn big, right? So it's not as if Facebook's like, we got to get these users. Um, and once we acquire them, then we can get them to have Facebook accounts. Most of them probably have Facebook accounts already anyway, because most people already do have Facebook accounts. Uh, and they're so far, they aren't trying to integrate it to say, like, we can get all those people to be more active Facebook users by tightly integrating it. So far, they haven't started doing that. Uh, so it's purchasing the users, meh, talent acquisition, kind of, but it's Facebook is already sucking up lots of talent. Uh, anyway, it seems like they could have gotten these people another way. The big reason that I think that they got these people is because they're eliminating a competitor. Exactly what you said about Dropbox. When I see a company get bought out for a huge valuation, it's like this small company that has shown that it can attract lots of users. Even though it's totally not a threat to Facebook yet, Facebook is like, well, that's what we do. We have a thing that 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 attracts lots of people to it. And these guys seem to be able to attract lots of people to their thing. And even though they're not strictly competitors quite yet, they kind of are because... We they have a photo app, but we like people to put photos on Facebook, and we have lots of photos too. But I don't know. I was kind of worrying about them. Can we can we just get rid of them? Yeah, let's just buy them. Like we get a lot of money. Whenever I see small companies bought by a big company, I always think they're doing it to eliminate a competitor. But if, you know, my my, my grand this reminds me of something my granddad used to say to me, and he 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 said, you know, money. There's nothing great about money. 
you know, there's, there isn't, there isn't money for money's sake. You know, all, all you really need to be happy is just, you know, safety, security, shelter. He said, but money in business, money is power. It lets you do and get the things that you want. And that, that is exactly this situation. It's very clear to me, especially hearing you say it and, and what we've heard over the last few weeks. They just simply said that these guys are doing something we like, we would like to do, place we'd like to be. They just wanted them to go away. Whether they continue to own the app and support it, they, then they can do whatever they want with that service. But like you said, man, it's not, it's not about users. They didn't get users from this. They got that space in people's mind to be able to say, oh, this is us now. This is where we are. Future is mobile. Future is photos. We get both of those. You just, it's just you know, writing out a little check for them. It's, here's a check. Just now, now we do this. And like, I bet they, th- they hope it's successful, right? That's of the course. thing. Like, well, we're not, we're not buying it just to squash it. We're not going to buy it and liquidate it and lay off all the employees. And now we own it. So tough luck, right? They never do that. Like that's, they want it to succeed, but if it doesn't succeed, if it ends up being like, yeah, you know, people are kind of not using Instagram as much anymore and whatever, like it just, it's like a, it's a load off their mind. Like if it fails, they're like, yeah, oh, well, like, but like, it's much less scary then if it's out there in the world and they're like, boy, I hope those guys, I hope their growth curve tapers off because if not, they're going to, you know, look at their, look at the graph of their user population and, and they're going to be passing us soon. And pretty soon, if more people have an Instagram account than have a Facebook account, then we start to get really worried. Like, right. It just, it's a load off their mind. And that's why people get pissed off when Facebook buys stuff. Not because Facebook is evil or Google is evil, or maybe some people get pissed off about that, but it's like, they know that the new owners will be less upset than they will if the thing goes away. Yeah. So if you're a hardcore Instagram user and you're like, oh, I love Instagram so much. Now you're like, oh, no, the people who own it now care much less than I do whether Instagram is successful. And so like either they're going to neglect it Google style or they'll disappear for a while and not improve their app or they'll try to integrate it in some gross way or maybe they'll let them be totally independent. And but like if it fails, they're like, Meh. you know, because it's just that's part of that's part of them now. And it's not an external competitor. And so they're not going to try to kill it and they're not going to do anything against their interest. I mean, they did, they want to do get their billion dollars worth or whatever, but if it fizzles or if they end up changing it, you know, this gets back to the strategy tax thing. If they end up changing it in ways that it never would have been changed, had it not been part of this larger company that makes it worse for users, but better for Facebook. Uh, so many bad things can happen when a company like that is bought. Uh, this is all completely aside from the idea of like did the people who started that company, were they successful? Hell yes. Like this, you know, that's, even even if Facebook goes or Instagram goes away tomorrow, they've still been massively successful. They made this great application that people love to use uh, and that people got lots of enjoyment out of. People got way more enjoyment out of than the zero dollars that they spent on it. And then they all got rich. Uh, some people like the uh, I think I linked this for Will Shipley's thing. I don't remember the analogy. It was like bridge builders versus something or else. Like whether yeah. you're whether you're building a business for the long term or whether you're in it for the, the quick cash out. I do not begrudge anybody the quick cash out. I wish I could get a quick cash out. If I'm like, to give me a quick cash out, here I am, right? Uh, <laughs> the, it just depends on what you want. And some people are like more disappointed, like, oh, you didn't build a company that would define the technology sector for the next 20 years. Maybe that's you not know, what the, they wanted the sh- to do. The shame of having a successful lifestyle business is, must be unbearable for... <laughs> no, or, or not even lifestyle business. Lifestyle, that's another thing of sneering at people like, oh, you're just supporting yourself. Well, so what? Like, yeah. but, but the idea that, oh, you could have been the next Facebook, but you chose not to. Well, who, maybe they didn't want to be the next Facebook. Who are you to tell them what they're supposed to be doing? Because you think it's it's cooler if they 
if they devote their entire life to becoming a huge Fortune 500 company, if that's not what they want to do. Like, so I nothing about the Instagram buyout bothers me in, in terms of like those people cashed out or they sold out their users or anything like that. What sold out their users, the users who gave them zero dollars, those users, like they, they don't owe their users anything financially or, or ethically or in any regard. And I think they're all trying to do what's best for their users and for everything. But now Facebook is the new owner. And I totally think the motivation for buying them is uh, elimination of a threat. And elimination of a threat does not mean putting out a hit on them and killing them. It simply means that they're not a threat anymore because they're part of you and their success is now your success. That's a that's also eliminating a threat because they're no longer adversarial. Now you have you've aligned your interests. And now face, if Instagram becomes massively successful, that's good for Facebook instead of bad. You don't eliminate a threat necessarily by killing them. But if they die too, meh. Oh, Instagram, that was pretty quick. That was like, think, boom. Yeah, I don't think that was particularly a, a original take on the topic, but uh, that's how I feel about these type of things. And the final one I have here, lurking. Lurking, waiting. <laughs> Patents. This has been at the bottom of my notes forever. Hmm. And I don't know, why is it that I'm bringing it up today? I think it had some connection to something. Maybe it was because I was thinking about big companies and little companies. I don't remember what the, it's connected to, but we haven't actually talked about patents. Every other show talked about patents. Back with the Lodzis stuff going on, you talked about them with Marco a lot and uh, the practical implications. I want to talk about patents in the abstract. Uh, I don't think I have a particularly original take on this, but I do have a take, and it may be... Interesting and controversial when I get to the end. We'll see. Uh, so quick review for people who don't know what patents are. And you don't want to go to the Wikipedia page about patents. I will read from it now. It's a set of exclusive rights granted by a sovereign state to an inventor or their assignee for a limited period of time in exchange for public disclosure or an invention. I think we kind of know what patents are. The common sense definition is you invent something cool, you patent it, and then other people can't use that invention unless they pay you money. That's kind of like the layperson's understanding uh, of what a patent is. Uh, that's not quite the same thing as that description I just read, and the differences are, are important. We'll get to them in a little bit. Uh, the reason we're talking about it is because I think there's something wrong with the current patent system. Lots of people think there's something wrong with the current patent system. Uh, for people who might not know, and I'm always amazed by this, by the way. This is a sidebar in my sidebars. Uh, a lot of the stuff I talk about in the show, I'm like, should I talk about that? Or does ev doesn't everybody listening to the show know that? Because like, if you're listening to the show, aren't you like a super nerd? And do I have to explain stuff that all super nerds know? But I continue to be surprised by people who write in and say, I listened to your show and I knew nothing previously about Topic X. And I'm not a super nerd. And I, I was it was interesting for me to learn these things. So I apologize to, the, to people who know about all these topics. And it seems like I'm going to review things. But I think sometimes it is useful to just, you know, just state what we all think is obvious for the people who might learn something from. Uh, so here's why all the super nerds dislike the current patent system. Uh, the first part is that patents are issued for dumb things. That is, that is a uh, brief summary of the one of the main complaints about patents. We all see things patented and we think, how can you even patent that? That is so patently obvious, get it? Yeah. Mm. Uh, and it just seems... <laughs> It's, it just seems ridiculous that you could patent that we have jokes about it. Microsoft patents ones and zeros like that old onion story. Right. But we see things patented that don't seem worthy of patents. And, and that is upsetting. And the result of this phenomenon that it seems like it seems like you can get anything patented is that everyone 
is in violation of everyone else's patents all the time. And people think that's an exaggeration. Like, like oh, you know, oh, okay, so there are some bad patents out there, but it's not a big deal. Literally, in the software industry, every software company violates every other software company's patents. Doesn't violate all their patents, but at least one, and probably way more than one. And that's because pretty much every technology software type patent out there is dumb. It's a patent of something that's obvious to anyone skilled in the art, that's not a particularly interesting invention, uh, whatever criteria they use, it's impossible to write software, literally impossible to write software without violating tons of patents. And that's why the current patent system in the technology industry is that big companies collect as many patents as they possibly can for sort of a mutually assured destruction scenario where they say, okay, well, we're totally in violation of tons of your patents. Aha, but we have a bunch of patents too, and you're totally in violation of them. And so if you come at me with your patents, I'm going to go at you with my patents and we're just, you know, uh, unlike nuclear mutually assured destruction, this has not led to companies not to sue each other for patent infringement. They continue to do it, but every company feels the need to have this war chest. That's one of the reasons people say Google bought Motorola is to, or the, the part of Motorola anyway, is to get access to their patents. It's why someone would buy up like the, the you know, Palm's intellectual property, property to get their patents. Everyone needs to have this war chest for this stupid game that makes no sense. Uh, but it's just part of the cost of doing business that you just have to have this big giant collection of patents so that you have something to retaliate with. Uh, and the nerds hate it because A, this seems dumb and it is dumb. And B, if you are not a giant company, patents are your worst nightmare because even if you are 100% in the right, you simply cannot afford to litigate a patent lawsuit unless you have millions of dollars. And this is where you got into the Lodzis thing where there was you know a, a patent a company suing lots of little guys. Even if you're 100% right, you cannot afford to litigate the case. And uh, But on top of that, you probably aren't in the right because, every once again, everyone is violating everyone's patents all the time anyway. It's, you know, that's, so if you're a little guy, you do not have your own war chest of patents with which to retaliate. You can't afford to litigate it whether you're going to win or lose. Uh, and most likely you're going to lose and your only recourse would be, okay, well, I'm going to lose this case, but I'm going to sue them and they're going to lose my case because they violate my patents because I have a war chest too. And then eventually you'll settle before both of you, before the trials come to a conclusion. Like that's the way these things usually work out. Count, they both parties sue each other. They usually don't let it go all the way through and it comes to sort of some sort of settlement. There's always parallel lawsuits. Okay, are you going to sue me for my patents? I'm going to sue you for your patents. And so it's a contrast of who has the dumbest patent. I have a patent on people using their eyeballs to look at television screens. Ha ha, you're going to be crushed because you sell the Apple TV and people use their eyeballs with that. And they look at the TV screen and I patented that. Mm -hmm. Right. And like, oh, man, there's no way we're getting out of that one. Well, what do you have? Well, I have a patent for receiving bits of information over a wireless network. Oh, man, there's no way. You know, it's, it's who has the dumbest patent? Who has the most idiotic patent? And then, you, you know, we will be able, no matter how dumb the jury is, we will be able to convince them that they're in violation of this because our patent is so stupid <laughs> that anybody can see that, you know, everything violates it. Uh, it's ridiculous. And so uh, a while back, this was last year uh, around this time, uh, NPR program Planet Money did a show uh, called When Patents Attack. I put in the show notes. I'm sure everyone listened to it last year. I think you discussed it on all your shows last year, but it's worth going back to or if you didn't get it that time. It's about... Nathan Mirvold's company called Intellectual Ventures, which is what we call a patent troll. They collect patents for the sole purpose of suing companies. And it's not for the sole purpose of finding companies that violate their patents. Everybody violates their patents. They just pick and choose kind of like a mafia boss 
it would be really terrible if something happened to your company there. And I see you may be in violation of a couple of patents we have. Have you seen the patents we have? We have a lot of patents. And I'm pretty sure you're in violation of a whole bunch of them. So we'll license these patents for you for a little little protection money, maybe. But if you don't want to license them, well, I'm sorry. We're going to have to take you card and sue you. And they have shell companies that do their suing for you. Like Lodsys is, is one of their shell companies. We're like, oh, we don't want to look like bad guys. We're, we're, we're trying to protect the inventors, right? So they have these little shell companies that do the suing for them. These companies exist solely to own or partially own a patent that intellectual ventures like licenses out to them. And then they sue companies and collect money from them. It's a terrible symptom of this incredibly stupid patent system we have. Uh, and so you should listen to that podcast if you don't understand what's going on uh, with these things or you want to hear a better, interesting, more narrative uh, account. Uh, so the reason I bring this all up, uh, uh, if, if you are new to this and you think that I'm exaggerating, I invite you to go find an engineer friend or a programmer friend or anybody in the technology industry and ask them how they feel against, about patents. I think you'll have a very hard time finding anybody who does not hate patents, even people who have patents themselves, people whose companies use patents and acquire patents and use them to sue other people. Uh, and I bet you'll even find people who feel some sort of injustice because they say, I have a patent on something that I really think is novel. It's not a dumb patent. And I do like suing people. And I don't like it when people use my idea without it. And I really uh, want to defend that. Even they will admit that, okay, so their patent may be novel and interesting and they like to defend it. But the patent system as a whole is completely corrupt and stupid and idiotic. And, they'll, and if they don't agree with that, they'll agree it as soon as Intellectual Ventures comes knocking on their door and says, uh, so you got some interesting stuff there. You want to pay us some money to license our patents that you are totally in violation of? It's, we got really dumb ones, uh, then I think they will change their tune. Uh, but it's it's amazing that like this thing that's ostensibly supposed to be protecting and helping inventors, you know, innovators. Uh, all of these supposed inventors and innovators hate it and just participate in the system because it's like the cost of doing business, and it's a tremendous cost. I wish I could have found this article. Someone, some professor, did a industry wide study to see how much does patent crap cost the technology industry, and it's a huge number. It's like billions or trillions or something like that. Simply the cost of acquiring these steward patents and hiring the lawyers and doing all this other stuff. It's just a tremendous drag on, on everything to do with the technology industry. Uh, so I, the reason I bring this up is I want to propose a solution. And I think many people have proposed solutions. My solution is not novel or interesting, but I think uh, it's worth discussing. All right, so this is the problem. How, how do you fix it? How do you make this not craptastic? Uh, how do you make it better? Um, and when, when people are trying to come up with solutions of, of like a better patent system or how do you, how do you fix this thing, what I see a lot of people do, and I found myself doing it as well in preparing these notes, is to look up what the intent of patent law is. Because we're like, okay, so the patent system is dumb, but like it was probably not invented to be dumb. It, was probably, it probably had some sort of noble goal. Like there was, you know, it was motivated uh, by good things. It just turned out to be bad. And so you'll try to look up what the point of patent law is. So if you if you go to the, I put this in the show notes too, the Wikipedia page for the copyright clause of the U.S. Constitution, since this is a U.S. show, this is what we're going to be talking about. And by the way, this is all U.S. law. I don't know how patents are in the rest of the world. Sorry, international listeners. You can enjoy our own stupidity here in America from afar. Uh, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8 of the United States Constitution, known as the Copyright Clause, entire empowers the United States Congress to promote for the progress of science and useful arts by securing for a limited time to authors and inventors exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. That is the copyright and patent clause that covers copyright and patents. So you have writings and discoveries. Discoveries are more like the patent type thing and the writings are, you know, copyright on 
novels and music and all sorts of stuff. So this clause has been broadly interpreted to uh, inform both copyright and patent law. I'm not going to talk about copyright at all here. I'm just talking about patents, but this is uh, frequently cited as sort of the foundation of like, why do we have a patent system? Right. And what people usually go, go to is to say, okay, to promote the progress of science and useful arts, like that, that phrase, you know, it says to promote the progress of science, and useful arts, comma, and then it says, here's the stuff you get by securing for a limited time, blah, 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 exclusive rights, blah, 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 right? Uh, and that, that first part is important, kind of like the same way people latch onto that first part of the Second Amendment, but I'm not going to get into that at all. Uh, they say, aha, the patent system was supposed to promote the progress of science and useful arts, right? So that was clearly, the, that's, the, that's the pure motivation, because who, does, who disagrees to the, the progress of science and useful arts? Useful, I love arts, and hey, useful arts are even better, and we want to promote their progress. What is so art, let, John? Oh, yes, I know. Like it's, this is the arts, not art. Oh, I, I see. I'm sorry. But it says science, too. <laughs> so that's your clear uh, uh, your motivation. Yeah, so, so the patent system is crappy, but let's try, to, let's try to get something that does what the patent system was trying to do. Uh, and as I was looking at this up, mostly so I can read it on the show, I was reminded of how I feel about this type of arguments, where people will do similar things. Uh, I, I guess I won't get into the second amendment, but other things are like, all right, so we have some sort of system or law or whatever, and I and it's like broken or corrupt or has problems or whatever. To fix it, let's figure out let's figure out what the intent of this was. And a lot of these things trace all the way back either to the Constitution or the founding of the country. And you've heard this phrase many, many, many times if you have watched anything to do with politics or law. What did the founders intend? The founders. The founders are so big in America. It's like the people who founded our country. I guess you don't have it so much in like China because it's kind of hard to find the founders of China. But what did the founders intend? Uh there was such a young country and we were formed in this idea. We were intentionally created, not organically grown. They were going to create a country. What did the founders intend? Let's, let's, fig- let's try to figure out how these old dead guys felt about this. And then we'll use that to figure out what we should do. And my question is, why do we care what the founders intended? And this is a question for you, Dan. And, and not just about patents, but about anything. Why do we care what the founders intended? You care what the founders intended because it is evident or it becomes evident if you understand that where they went wrong. So if if we know what they intended, then you can say at the time that they did this, this was their intention. This is what they were setting out to do. Then you can cross check that with the way that the world has evolved since the time that they came up with it. And you can say, this is how we can, or this is our best way to attempt to modify this law, this rule, this uh, suggestion to apply to modern times. The, the way I usually see it is that people want to know what the founder intended because they want to show how what's currently going on does not match what the founder intended. As opposed to trying to preserve what their intention was, knowing that times have significantly changed. It's a similar type of thing. Like, it's like, well, the founders intended this, but times have changed totally now. And so the way of bringing about whatever that their expected result necessarily has to change because they wanted to, I mean, here is an example. They wanted to promote progress in the science and useful arts, right? And you can say, okay, well, that's what they wanted to do. uh, But the way they chose to do it doesn't work in the current context. So the solution is, let's find a way to promote the progress of science and useful arts that works with our current system, right? That, this is slightly different what you were saying, is sometimes you want to say what they intended so you can figure out, like, where, you know, where they went wrong. Uh, but No, not, not with the intent that they went wrong. M- more like 
Why it's not working now. Why it's not working now. So if if back in the ancient days when patent law was being crafted for the very first time, you you didn't have the internet, you didn't have any of the things that we have now, you didn't even have technology really in the same sense that we have it now. You didn't have people competing in the way that they were now. You might have a guy who's on a farm who says, well, if I put this doohickey here and it pushes against that lever, then... Uh, wow, I could save an hour, you know, planting these fields. And then he realizes, well, if I were to sell that thing I just invented that I might make some money and I don't want someone else to just look at what I've built and go and build the same thing, you know, this is this is my ace in the hole. So they go and they get a patent on it. And, and it, it would take years and years of building things and perfecting them and getting it out there. And, and it wasn't something somebody typically came up with you know, just in an afternoon in front of a keyboard and said, oh, we get to patent that because that's a neat idea. This was something that w- people were taking typically many, many years to develop and invent. This is the true concept of invention. And that's what the patent system, the spirit of the patent system, to me at least, seems like it was all about. It was to protect a complete invention that somebody had, not just, you know, not just a little piece of plastic that goes on the end of the shoelace, but the concept of, you know, of, of a device, something that, that really did something. And somewhere along the way, it seems like patent law went south and, you know, and every single interaction that you do is patented. Everything that you have in your house, every tiny little, uh, little doohickey is, is, is a patent that somebody else had to pay somebody else to use and to do. And it, it became a stumbling block and a stopping point for people to invent and create, which is, seems to me like the opposite of the reason. So if you look at the intent of that law, if you go back and you say, well, why were they doing this in the first place? It was to to protect the prosperity of the person who invented the thing in the first place and not not to become what it's turned into today, which is, I guess, to create a field of warfare for companies to agree to not destroy each other. So the reason I brought up, like, uh, why do we care what the founders intended is... Uh, in this various ways we looked at it, uh, figuring out why it's not working or whatever. And what we're trying to do is find a way to get their intended result, possibly with something entirely different than what they intended. Uh, so there's a couple of... Our friend Andy Bio says software patents are simply to protect ideas, not even actual inventions, methods of doing business. He says this in I Am. Yeah. So the the uh, the idea that the premise behind this is that what the founders intended is a good idea. And this this whole thing with the founders is mostly a big appeal to authority fallacy because we just assume, well, they're important people and they wanted this, therefore it must be a good thing. Uh, and so we're assuming, oh, the progress of the science and the useful arts, who could disagree with that? That's a good thing. So let's figure out a way to get that and maybe we don't use the same technique that they're using or maybe we have to alter it to keep up with the times. My take is, on this issue and all other issues where anyone ever references what the founders intended... I do not care what the founders intended about anything. I cared zero about the founders. I don't care what they wanted to do. I don't care why they wanted to do it. I don't care anything about them. Right. Because they're all dead. We're here. We should judge our ideas like, is this something that we want to do? No, it doesn't mean I'm saying, oh, you can violate the Constitution. Like, the Constitution is an important thing and it should be hard to change. But who the hell cares what a bunch of dead people wanted to do it for? Who cares? Let's decide whether it's good for us now. And if that means 
changing the constitution through some horrible process that's very difficult fine we'll do that it's good to have something that's difficult to change because you don't want people you know changing things that you know constitutional system is great and everything but i want to spend zero amount of time trying to figure out what the hell old dead people thought what their motivations are what they were trying to do i don't care what they were trying to do i don't care what their motivations are anything like that except for as it may inform my view of the world in the same way that you study history but there's no way that i'm carrying water for these people and saying oh i got to keep trying to do what they were trying to do I'm going to say, well, wait a second. Do we want to do the same things as they want to try to do? Like, let's let's think about that before we think about how best to do what the founders intended or debate about what these old dead people wanted to do. I don't care at all. Yeah, you're saying right? times times have changed. Times are different yeah. now. It, it doesn't matter what they wanted to do. Is it even still right. relevant? And it doesn't, doesn't mean it I disagree work? with them. It doesn't mean that I'm saying, oh, we shouldn't promote the progress of science useful arts. But it's, what it does mean is that I'm not going to start from a premise that whatever they were trying to do is what we're going to try to do, too. I'm going to say, do what do we want to do? What do we want to do right now? If it happens to be the same as what they want, maybe we can learn from what they tried to do and failed or whatever. But totally not going to spend any time worrying about trying to do what, like, it. It's as if they're trying to do something and then we're just like forever trying to continue doing the thing that they were trying to do. It makes no sense. I, I want to judge everything about how it works right now. So when I thought about patents, I didn't think about much of them as a kid because what, what kind of kid thinks about patents? By the time I got done with undergrad in college, I was 100% in the camp of no software patents because right. I, you know, I have computer engineering degree, plenty of computer science courses. The idea that you can patent anything having to do with code was absurd to me. Like most programmers, I think it's ridiculous. Uh, I didn't know that much about the evils of the industry and how this works in the industry, but I just knew that it's a stupid idea. So I came out of undergrad, I said no software patents. And I think that was around the time that... Uh, that software patents were becoming news. And I was just so clearly on the side of like, you should not be able to patent software, period, the end, full stop, nothing, right? After graduation, when I was in like the working world, my next thing was like, okay, no software patents. Also, these business process patents, like the one-click patent was kind of hitting around then. The, the whole idea of a business process patent was maddening to me. And especially with the one-click thing, it just seemed absurd. I'm like, okay, we can't have business process patents either. Uh, and my current position on patents and my solution to the ills caused by the patent system is no patents ever for anything. And I've thought about this a long time because not every, like I'm like, am I just going like crazy radical position? Is this, is this crazy? I've this is the, the, the best solution I can come up with to the current problem is you cannot patent anything. And to to think about this, I've had to think about like what the purpose of patents, uh, you know, what the intended purpose of patents are, how they failed, all those other things that I was talking about. But I'm not using it as, as a way to try to do the same things that patents do. I'm just trying to think of it as like, what's the problem here? Um, and so many people in the chat room are pointing out, and I have in my notes here too, that the key phrase that I have bolded in the little constitution clause is, uh, no, actually it's not in there, it's in the Wikipedia thing. I think they have it. Let's see. Uh, I'll read the Wikipedia thing again. A set of exclusive rights granted by a state whatever, you know, to an inventor or their assignee for a limited period of time, the limited period of time is part of the thing, in exchange for public disclosure of the invention. When I say that there should be no patents ever, um, I, I'm waiting for the comebacks. And part of the comebacks are, well, before we had patents, what you wanted to do as a business was come up with an awesome way of doing something and then never tell anybody about it. Because if someone found out about it, they could just do the same thing and take your money. And so the patent system is like, all right, we will give you exclusive rights to this awesome idea that you have. In exchange, you have to tell everybody about it, right? And so they were hoping that like, there wouldn't be some company hoarding some super secret device made of wooden tubes and pipe cleaners or whatever 
uh, that no one else can know about. And they, they, they've got the market sewn up and they, they've cornered it and no one else. You know, it's a trade secret, right? We're going to say, we're going to give you a financial motivation to tell the world about that. So then a whole bunch of other companies can make this new, handsome, you know, cool widget thing that does this fancy stuff. All right. And they'll license the patent from you. So, yeah, you won't be able to sell all of them, but there'll be a, a richer field of, of uh, competitors who are doing this type of thing. Uh, and you'll get money from it. And that's their motivation. Because we, they were trying to incent people to or, uh, the effect of the system is to incent people to disclose their inventions, to not keep it a secret. Uh, and again, this was a long time ago. And we see how why does that not work now? Because, uh, well, they, you know, they're patenting more stuff and it's, it, they shouldn't be patenting things that are obvious to people. And it's the people who are uh, issuing the patents don't have the expertise to decide what's obvious and what's not and all these other problems or whatever. Uh, so the conclusion that I eventually come to is that you just need to totally eliminate the entire concept of patents, that no one should have exclusive right to profit from anything that they make. Uh, in terms of inventions, I, I'm not getting into copyright in terms of your works that you've created, uh, uh, copyrighted works. I, I don't think copyright should be eliminated. I think there's problems with those laws as well, but I don't want to get into that. I'm just specifically talking about patents. So like, obviously, your application is copyrighted. No one can say, I sell Adobe Photoshop too because I made a perfect bit for bit copy of it and buy it for me. No, you can't do that because that's copyright law and we're not discussing that. But patents is, I make my own graphics program that happens to violate 8,000 of Adobe's patents because they got a whole bunch of patents. But I never saw Adobe software, or, or if I did it, I didn't know that they had the same thing. Like, you have no idea that you're violating these people's patents. Uh, that's what we're trying to avoid. The idea that not only do you get the profit from the thing that you make that you sell people, but the very ideas that you use to build it, you get something from the government that says, if anyone else uses those same ideas, you get money for it. And I think that there's no point in that at, at all. Uh, the strongest argument against my position that there should be no patents ever for anything of any kind uh, well, I'll let you, what, what's your strongest argument against? I'll see if it ends up being the one I've got on my paper here. I'm always anti it. I'm always thinking about the anti. So I'm very curious to hear what you're, what you've come so the, up with. The strongest argument that I've heard against the idea that patents should be abolished. Uh, from the company, it, you're talking about from the company standpoint or from the individual from standpoint? Any, from anybody. It's like, because I'll say, I think we should have no patents ever. And you can imagine the people who like say say someone in congress came up with that i would like to abolish patent law who what what would happen to that person what you know first of all do you think that law would get passed and if not why not who would oppose it and why would they oppose it uh and so that's just lawmakers and lobbyists and we can imagine all the people who have a vested interest in patents would oppose it like intellectual ventures would oppose it obviously but right. are there actual reasons that common people would say Okay, so patents are all broken and maybe i'm on board with having no software patents and maybe i'm on board with having no business process patents but uh, it's one of the things, one of the weaker arguments that I come up is like the idea behind I made this cool widget thing that like, like a machine that I make and I've patented it. That whole idea of an American inventor, like through your ingenuity, you create something novel and you feel you have a right to profit from that and you want to patent it so no one else can copy it. When it comes to physical things, I think there is a common uh, notion among Americans at least that yeah, he deserves to get money for that thing. He patented that. You can't copy his thing. Right. Uh, right. I don't think that's a particularly strong argument, but it's definitely uh, one uh, one that's in widespread, uh, you know, uh, th throughout most Americans, they feel that like in their gut because they're just used to the idea. Right. If uh, somebody else did it first, then it's theirs and you shouldn't be able to just do the same thing. Right. Because you didn't you didn't do you the didn't work. For it. It's kind of it. like, you know, picking up yourself by your bootstraps, self-made man, the American dream all wrapped up in that. Right. And also because like the big biggest part of it is just like that's the way it's always been, so we don't want to change it. But 
uh, if people think about it more and they know more about the industry, the strongest argument I've heard uh, against it, and it's strong mostly because it has big appeals to authority and appeals to the way things are, uh, is the idea uh, that drug companies need to be able to patent things. And you hear lots of anti-patent stuff from drug companies too, but the, the strong argument is if no patents exist at all, what kind of company is going to spend years and years and hundreds of millions of dollars of research if they know that the second they figure out how to cure something, they put out a pill and then everyone else buys one of those pills, figures out what the chemical composition of it is and sells a generic equivalent, right? And they didn't spend five years and $600 million to figure out what kind of chemical composition to put in this pill or to figure out this is a pill that helps with whatever. Right. So what motivation do drug companies have to try to find a cure for cancer or something if they know that they're going to spend, they're going to be the suckers to spend hundreds of millions of dollars and pay all these researchers and do all these clinical trials and do all that stuff. And the second they finally figure it out, the guys just sit there, some company sits there and wait, waiting for, you know, all right, I'll wait for those guys to do all the work. And as soon as the pill comes out, they're like, okay, let's start churning out those pills. Who would you rather be? Why, you know, is a drug company motivated to make, to do all that research if they know everyone is going to steal their work? And that seems unfair to to people. Uh, not only does it seem unfair, and it seems like the result of that is that no one will ever invest in finding cures for anything anymore. Yeah. Or the alternative is they'll try to keep their formulation secret. Or back to the trade secret thing, like we're not going to tell them. But I don't know a lot about biology and drugs, so people can correct me if I'm wrong. But I'm assuming that being able to keep a drug, a trade secret, without protection of patent law is probably not feasible because I'm assuming the competitors can just buy the pills and put them into a spectrogram or something and figure out what the hell they are, right? Uh, uh, and if they, and even if they can do that, like say you eliminated the patent system, uh, that leads to other things. Like they, you can imagine a drug equivalent of DRM. They're like, oh, you can totally figure out what's in our pills, <laughs> and we don't have a patent on them because you know the patent system was abolished because of that podcast. Uh, but if you reverse engineer our pills, that we consider that circumvention and it violates our DRM. You know what I mean? Kind of like how we we all know how. DVD encryption works because some guy figured it out, but but actually using that knowledge is illegal, right? And it's not as if the you, it's it's a difference in law. Like you're just replacing patent law with some other horrible law where you don't have a patent on DVD encryption and therefore you can't decrypt DVDs unless you license our patent. But because it falls under the category of DRM, we have these anti-circumvention laws, and you know, so that that either doesn't work where they can't keep it a trade secret, or to keep it uh, from competitors' hands, you end up creating this new section of law that's just as stupid and horrible and probably is uh, a relative of DRM law, which is also stupid. Uh, so this is the strongest argument that I've heard. Maybe pe people can write in and say, try to give me a stronger argument for why you absolutely need to have a patent system. And uh, I bring this up because a lot of people will say, what if we had a patent system that wasn't dumb? What if you only patented stuff that were worthy of patents? Uh, you know, what if it was a patent system run by an omniscient being that did exactly the right thing all the time? Isn't that okay? I think that's not even okay, but I also think it's unreasonable because there's no way that anyone can know enough. And I think p people can't even agree of what's worthy on a patent or not, let alone, uh, you know, actually doing that in practice. Uh, so my response to this was the last barrier to me saying no patents for everything. because so I was trying to think about, you know, drug companies and everything. My My response to that argument of like, if we didn't have any patent systems, we would never find cures to anything. Uh, and this is kind of one of those arguments that everyone who wants radical political change makes where they, they can't they can't draw from. Like, they have to basically say, I think if we did the thing that I say, that bad stuff wouldn't happen. That's basically what I'm going to end up saying here. So it's kind of bogus because it's, uh, you know, the, everyone who wants radical change says that. I think that if you completely eliminated the patent system, 
companies would still try to find cures for cancer. Uh, And why would they try to do that? Because people want to find a cure for cancer and companies are made of people. Yes, there would have to be different structures for funding. The the entire business would be turned on its head. Things wouldn't work the same way. Maybe research would slow way, way down for a long time. But the idea that people go, oh, I'm not going to bother them because some guy would just copy me. People will try to find a cure for cancer because people want to find a cure for cancer, period. And, you know, we'll all find a way to try to do that without patent law. I don't think there's any particular moral or ethical right to exclusivity of this thing that you invented, mostly because I think the entire notion that you invented this thing, this idea, not this physical manifestation of that idea. Of course, that's yours. You made that, whatever that is, that product, that song or whatever. But this this concept, oh my God, it's so amazing. I deserve, if anyone else ever has this idea anywhere, I deserve money for it. I disagree with that entire premise, whether it's a physical invention, a piece of software or anything like that. The the I think the best and easiest solution to the patent system, maybe easiest from the perspective of legislation, is to simply eliminate it entirely. And I think it would disrupt the industry and you'd have to figure out new ways to do things. But in the end, it would be a huge net win. Uh, I don't even, I, again, I don't want to spend time thinking about what the founders intended, but I don't even understand that argument. Even if some, someone wants to make that and say, oh, we think you should have an exclusive set of rights for an, for the, for an idea or a quote-unquote invention. I don't think you should have. I, I disagree with that, that motivation. Uh, you know, that's the founders, current people, otherwise the mechanism for doing it, I don't think that makes any sense. Uh, and it's obvious to everyone involved that the horrible effects of the current system we have trying to do that are bad. I don't think there's any such thing as a good system that can do that. I don't think you can make a system. Uh, basically, I, I disagree with the aim. I don't think you should be trying to give people money for uh, for ideas that they have uh, when other people could possibly have the same ideas. They're owed money for it. Uh, and I know that's kind of hand wavy with like, oh, people will try to cure cancer just out of the goodness of their heart. They'll just want to do it. Like you need financial motivation. How is it going to work? I don't have the answers to all those questions. I just believe that eventually there were, people would find a way to pay for that. I mean, th- think of it for like uh, pure research. There's ton- plenty of people doing pure research and pure scientific research, or maybe it would be, it would be piggybacked on something else, like how much stuff we get out of the space program or used to get out of the space program, uh, where no one was paying for them to invent the microwave oven. We were paying for them to beat the communists to the moon or whatever, but you get a microwave oven out of it, right? Uh, you know, this, there are other ways to get the benefits that we think we're getting only because we give people patents. And I think we're way past the point where the bad part of patents overweigh the good. Uh, and I think this should be a wake-up call to people to say, it's not that our system is imperfect. Even a perfect simple system implementing this would be bad because that's, it's, not a, it's not a good goal. Giving people exclusive rights to their ideas and, give, and letting them profit from other people who happen to have the same ideas, whether they copy them or not, is not good for society. That's, that's where I come down on patents. Decisively. I mean, like, I haven't, haven't had a good debate with somebody about this, probably because I don't know enough about it to probably participate in a good debate about patents. I, uh, I'm trying to just, think while you've been talking about this, I've been trying to think in my, you know, of an example of how companies, like, what would be the response if today the patent system was gone? There are lots and lots and lots of companies for whom a large part of their business, whether it's LODSYS or otherwise, where a large part of their business or their revenue comes from the way that they license their patents. Now, you, your response to that would be, well, they shouldn't be making their money that way. They should it be would, making their money by making something great that people want to buy or, or pay for. 
it would be a disruption to lots of businesses, no doubt about it. I mean, anytime you would change some raw that any law that radically, there's going to be a disruption. There's going to be winners and losers. Winners, we can obviously think of all the winners. Technology companies would be big winners uh, because now they don't have to be hoarding these stupid patents and paying for them. Maybe Google doesn't buy Motorola. Maybe they save that money. Like I think technology companies who currently have big war chests are like, oh, now our weapons are useless. But on the other hand, they'd be like, you know what? It's kind of nice not to have to deal with that crap, especially the people, the technology companies who really just want to make stuff. And Apple and Microsoft and Google, most of the people in that company, just, they just want to make things. And that patent stuff is just a stupid sideshow. So even big power players in the patent industry would like it. The drug companies would have serious problems. <laughs> and other companies that like, they're, they have legal protections to allow them to make money. Uh, they, you know, a government... Uh, sanctioned monopoly on their idea for a certain period of time and their entire business structure centers around the idea that we're going to make this drug and it's going to uh we're going to have exclusive rights to make money from it and that's how our business they'd have to restructure their business maybe they all go out of business maybe a bunch of them go out of business there would be a big period of disruption i'm not pretending that there would be suddenly you know sunshine and roses the very next day it would be tremendously uh difficult for companies to adapt but the end result for society in the long term would be much better because at this point, society as a whole ha- gets nothing good out of patents and tons of bad, tons and tons of bad. Uh, all of society is paying for the, this patent thing, and we're not seeing the benefits from it. It's not motivating inventors. It's not giving us more good stuff. Everything that happens from the perspective of consumers is bad. We get charged more money for things. Uh, small people can't compete against the big guys. Uh, lots of our money that we pay for our cool Apple devices goes into their stupid war chest so they can play this little game in courtrooms where they sue other companies. That's just a sideshow. It's not, you know, it's pointless. We'd rather than spend that money to make better, cool things or lower their prices or both. Uh, so I don't know how convinced people are that patents should go away. I think most of most of the layperson's understanding of patents, not, not that I'm also a layperson, basically, <laughs> when it comes to patents. You are, that, you are not like a patent attorney, for the record. No, is, is that, like people accept that they should exist and they're like, Oh, there's some problems with the patent system, but you can't get rid of patents. You know, that's just a crazy talk. Like it's, it's something that's part of life. And, uh, I should find the Steve jobs video if I could, uh, is that one of, of him with the big beard back at next. And, uh, he's talking about his philosophy on life. And he says, uh, you'll do much better in life. Once you realize that all the stuff that's around you in life was put there by people no smarter than you are. Uh, the idea that you don't just like life isn't a machine that you live in and you experience it. It's something made by people. And hey, you're one of those people. And so why can't, you know, don't accept like things the way they are just because the way they, are. they were just made. The things are the way they are because some person made it that way. And you're a person and you can make it a different way or you can add a new thing. You can change things. Right. And this is a motivation in all of us. It's like, well, do you want to hear the quote? Do you want to hear the, the actual quote? Do you have it? I do. Go for it. It happens to be printed out on large banner going across the walls of my room. No, I'm just kidding. But I do have it here. Life can be much broader once you discover one simple fact, and that is everything around you that you call life was made up by people that were no smarter than you. The minute that you understand that, you can poke life, that you can change it, you can mold it. That's maybe the most important thing. Yeah, and that, like, because patents are a thing that have existed since we've all been born, there's the tendency to accept them as just the way it is and try to fix them. Let's tweak it. Let's just change it a little bit. Or let's figure out what, what those, what our forebearers who obviously knew everything uh, intended. And we'll try to, to try to uh, do what they wanted. You say, well, these are just guys. This was what they did then. What do we need to do now? Right? 
Yeah, like who, that. Uh, the meta question about the founders is, uh, is that shouldn't we all be trying to figure out what works now? Instead of it's like it's like trying to carry on a mission. Like these people had a mission to get to the top of the mountain, and we're all keep trying to get to the top of the mountain. It's like, do we even want to be on the top of the? Like, why are we even? Oh, well, they wanted to, and the, and they started the country. Therefore, we have to do what they wanted. Who cares what they wanted? Like what they did has left us with the constitution such as it is, and we have to deal with the system they put in place. I'm not I'm not advocating anarchy, but I don't care what their motivations were. And anytime any debate starts, like pondering or, or worse arguing about whether i think the founders intended this well i think the founders intended that well this like the church and state separation they always do well look at this well here's these papers from thomas jefferson and says that he was totally against the church aha but here's this from thomas jefferson that said he was a very religious i don't care if thomas jefferson wanted church and state separated or together i care about whether church and uh, church and state being separate or together is good or bad i don't care who wanted it that way you know that's it's crazy to me it's crazy making to see people debating what the founders wanted and Patents are the same way. Are patents a good idea? Yes, no. Who cares who wanted them that way? Let's talk about whether they're a good idea. I think they're not a good idea ever for anything. If you're going to debate me, tell me why they're a good idea. Don't tell me why some long dead guy thought they were a good idea because I don't care what he thought. I think I'm done with patents. Yeah, right. And we'll see. We'll see if I get lots of angry email from people telling me why patents are essential and that society will well, not. The emails, the emails will come in a form like this. John, you should not talk about things that you are admittedly not an expert in. I myself am a patent attorney. And let me begin to tell you why all of the things that you said from minute 102 on are completely incorrect. That's how they will. That's how they'll go. They usually tell me they're disappointed in me. Yeah. So I'm very disappointed. I listened to your show. You seem like a smart guy, but you <laughs> talked about patents. I'm very disappointed that you seem to know nothing about them. All right. I do admit you that should, and then they'll add this. You should really stick to things that you do understand, like file systems. Right, exactly. And then the file system people yeah, say little, you little shouldn't talk about that, file systems. Yeah. Little did I know that to to file system experts, I sound exactly as dumb to them as I do <laughs> to talk about patents. To, patents. Right, to like a, to a, a regular person who's not a deep specialist in anything, you're really convincing. But then when the specialists come out, they'll find something. Yeah. They'll find something that can they can use to invalidate everything that that you've said. But we like those people. We yeah. thrilled so actually, that they listen. I mean, I mean and like, like all things, I like just them. because I've come to this conclusion that I think there should be no patents ever does not mean that I can't be convinced otherwise. I have simply been unable to convince myself otherwise. I have arrived at this starting from the point of like as a kid, like, well, of course there have to be patents. And then seeing, well, some patents are dumb. Well, of course, the other patents are dumb too. And then thinking about it and thinking about it and going, you know what? This whole idea of patents is dumb. Eliminate them. And then it's like, oh, that, that makes everything better. Uh, eventually. <laughs> after after the dark days when everything implodes and we don't have drugs to cure our diseases or whatever, but I really do think eventually things would be better. Uh, so feel free to run in and tell me why. Uh, and uh, the other thing I wonder is how common this is, because in all the debates with the lots of stuff, I don't recall seeing a single person say patents should be eliminated. Maybe I'm just reading the wrong blogs, not reading the right guys. Lots of people saying how software patents are bad, how the way patent system is implemented is bad, how... You know, all sorts of things, people will say individual aspects of the current laws or system or combination thereof is bad. But I didn't see people saying the entire patent system should be abolished. Maybe it's like too bold and they didn't want to make it like a sideshow. They really just wanted their business not to be attacked or something. But like, I didn't, you know, all the people who were participating in that, like, I didn't hear Marco say that. Did he ever say that he wanted the patent system entirely eliminated? I don't recall hearing that. I don't Uh, think, I don't know if he said those exact words. 
and Craig Hockenberry, who's getting sued, he doesn't like being sued. He thinks it's dumb. But I don't remember him doing a blog post that says the entire patent system should be eliminated. Everyone wants to eliminate software patents like that. I see that a lot among software. What's, this, what's the story with him getting sued? I haven't heard that. I don't I don't know. But the this the ongoing story is I'm sure the ongoing story is sad. I remember Apple was going to intervene on their behalf and you know, things take a long time to go through the legal system. Yeah, but where where are they today? I don't know. You should get them on the show and interview them. He's too, big, he probably, he's probably too can't tall. talk about it. He's too tall. Yeah, well, you know, you just sh- look upwards and shout. I, I uh, mean, the last thing I heard was the Lodsys thing was like on hold, but maybe it's still going on. I think it's still going on. Okay. I'd love to have Craig on. I'll have a place for him to be soon, too. A new show. You can come on there with him. All right, then. You're as tall as him. Taller. Almost. I think we're done for today. That's it? That's all you got? Yes. I definitely feel much less comfortable ranting about patents than I do ranting about games, but kind of stretch yourself, you know? Yeah. Maybe next time we'll talk more about programming. I know that people love that so much. Some people. Yep. All right, so you can follow John uh, by going to twitter.com slash Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. There's no Z in that at all. You can see all of the notes and links that John and I have compiled for you by going to 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 67. And those links are subsidized by our friends over at helpspot.com. It's like your own help desk. It's your own personal help desk. And they have a thing now where you get 100 bucks off if you use the code 5x5 at helpspot.com. So that's new. Thanks to them. And uh, I think that's it. I'm, I may even have released the, uh, the new 5x5 radio app. I might have happened during the show. Who knows? You'll have to go and find that out. And uh, you've got a few more hours to buy a 5x5 t-shirt at shop.5x5.tv. There's special WWDC shirts. And uh, what else you got, John? That's it. It's everything you got. That's it. All right. Have a great weekend and a great week. And we will be back next Friday. Have a good one. You too.